1: Breed Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
3: Good morning and <laughs> welcome to this week's Greenwashed. And hard to believe that the year is gone, but Don and I are counting down to our very last show, the last three hours of 2023 of doing Greenwashed. And it has been quite a ride. I Thank our listeners for joining us along for the ride. And hopefully you've had some fun along the way.
4: Well, we've had we've had some fun. Um, if nobody else, uh Jasper and you've uh you've led the way in the fun machine.
3: <laughs> it's important, yeah. On this crazy journey is really important. I have I've learned from a few people, one of whom is actually in the house with us right now, my mate Jill Booth. Welcome, Jill. Hi, Jasper. Hi, Don. Hi, listeners. Hey, yes, good. and it
5: has been fun. It's been a
4: hard Good. year, but it's been fun. <laughs> She's a hard case, isn't she, uh, Jill? Always got a smile on her face, as uh, as Jill. Um, sorry, I got that round the wrong way, uh, but anyway.
3: Yeah, uh, you I know. know. What I mean. They do know what you mean, and Jill certainly knows what you mean. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, this is going to get messy with the three of us. So yeah, yeah, it's
3: going to be going to be an interesting. Um... It is. It is going to be an interesting one, right now. Before we uh, go on to our guests as as our usual want uh, Don and me we will today be tackling the last two sustainable development goals that we have left on the table yet to be discussed these are sustainable goal number 16 and 17 Don and I will follow that up with a couple of other guests but for today we've got Jill in first first in first out and we let her free for the holiday festivities right Jill Sooner. That's right. I don't know if there'll be too many festivities. I've got
5: children home. That usually means hard work and um dishes and cooking. So yeah. So goal sixteen is the is the to promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide <laughs> access to justice for all, justice for all, and build effective, accountable and inclusive institutions at all levels. So wow. my translation to this one is. Strengthen police states everywhere, institute pre-crime departments and RFID chips to track everyone, while giving tax breaks to organisations that promote certain government agendas via hiring policies of their
3: product or services. Man, aren't you a laugh a minute, Jill. Yeah, 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 it's coming into Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so uh, what I hear is, This is anything but justice. If we have looked around, and uh, and I'll give you some time here, Don, to talk about your personal anecdotes with justice and crime over the last couple of years, what you've seen, what you witnessed in terms of crime statistics. But looking at the amount of ram rates, unless I'm mistaken, the increase was over 600% in the last couple of years. Looking at everything, thefts, homicides, robberies, assaults, everything seems to have gone up. Or even if it hasn't, I certainly know a lot more people are feeling unsafe. And for many, this is a novel experience because New Zealand is supposed to be, you know, a laid back place. Nothing really happens. We are quite chilled out people, but that's not the way it feels now, Don, does it?
4: It certainly doesn't. And uh... All through my life, I've respected the property of other people. I don't have any want to desecrate the property of uh, somebody else or damage it or invade the space of other people un- uninvited. But it seems par for the course now. You can just trample through people's property, walk over their property rights, and someone will sort of defend you almost. And you know, when I looked, because I haven't followed the SDGs that well, but I've did a little bit of study, and it talks about. Um, 2021, this is worldwide in and, and the UN report, the highest number of intentional hom- homicides in 20 years, 458,000 lives lost worldwide. Nine in 10 victims were male. And um, they go on to talk about um, conflicts and they go on to talk about trafficking vi- victims and a whole lot of stuff. None of this, in, New, in a New Zealand sense, none of this should have any... Relevance. Any relevance. We should be Mm. living in a really civil society that while there was always a few issues, when I was a kid growing up, it never, and even a young adult, this stuff never raised its head like it is now. If you had one homicide in your region in two years, it was the talking point. Now things seem like normalized. Now, what's the reason? Um, To me, we've weakened the institutions of everything. Um, Everything's got rather lame, to use a lame term. Um, And we're very soft on everything. We're soft on everything uh, that we shouldn't be. And we have people trying to uh, almost, you know, they're blaming us for their victim status. I mean, it's, it's it's a weird, it's upside down. Everything is upside down to the way I remember it. And as Jules just said, the surveillance state is a big problem. We don't need it. We should be kicking it down the road and we should be making sure that the institutions that I grew up with, the 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 idea about the respect for the property of the individual is paramount. End of story. Yeah. Enforce it. Enforce mm-hmm. that. And we'd have no problem, surely.
5: And respect for life. But unfortunately, too, this is, again, that, that comes straight out of the socialist Marxist playbook of, of creating a problem that... You know m- making a, a mountain out of a out of a molehill so crime has been grown um our, our judges have been our left wing judges have been put into place our left wing court has been put into place over over a number of years since the mid 70s so so they've grown crime but a lot of our prison system too is under Surco, which is a private company and and a private company depends on profit which mm-hmm. depends on repeat custom so we under all the guys of doing good and all the soft, touchy-feely stuff we do within our um, criminal system, it's not actually making good inroads to not have repeat custom.
3: Mm -hmm. And I've got family in UK and in uh, US, in California specifically, and speaking to both of them, uh, you know, uh, family members in these places. So in London, I was told you can no longer just walk across, even in certain, uh, you know, uh, better areas well healed areas just say reading your uh, ipad or your iphone or going past because it'll be stolen there is it is just happens all the time i was told yeah. you, you put your phone away somewhere secure and i was like that's beginning to sound a bit like delhi and then i heard the similar story from someone in california again that the amount of homelessness the amount of just crime and uh Just people out there making a fool of themselves at times, exposing themselves without even being worried about any repercussions, exposing themselves in front of young children. This has happened to uh, friends there. And one wonders, well, what the heck is going on? Meanwhile, all of this just goes on as if the police don't seem to do anything. And yet last week came the report out of the Independent Police Conduct Authority on the uh, conduct of New Zealand police at the 2022 parliament protests and found that the New Zealand police used excessive force in multiple incidents. At that time, over 2,000 complaints were filed against the police in respect of the process and the protests, but uh, about 21 were deemed uh, you know, worthy enough to carry forward, and they found about six of them were uh, upheld. So where are they focusing their energies?
4: Yeah. Yep. It doesn't seem um doesn't seem right. I mean, I you know, for I, I wasn't at the protest, but it uh clear from the photos I saw and the, the videos I saw that um there seemed to be some tensions that were perhaps incited by the boys in blue. Mm. And um and I have only six uh, cases they considered uh worthy of serious investigation did seem a little odd but hey as i said i wasn't there i'm hoping that this story will yeah either come to its conclusion um with legitimate commentary or yeah i'm waiting for the people that were at the protest to stand up and sort of say no that's not right we're not going to we're not going to have that or or are they just going to accept it what's going to happen i don't know but mm-hmm. um it, it did seem, from the video I saw, that the police uh, did uh, exert a lot of force. Now, I accept there was a lot of tension there. Um, and But the other thing that gets me is, were there police stooges in there inciting? Were, were there mm. people inside creating problems? I don't know, because that's the rumor. So I haven't read the report, and, and I'm sort of being blindsided by this question, but um, um, let's hope something comes out of it that makes sense.
3: And they want us to believe that we have peace, justice, and strong institutions. I, you know, nearly a decade ago, I was a literacy volunteer at one of New Zealand's largest prisons, the Waikiria prison, when we were working not too far. And was it three years ago that I saw part of a block where I taught at one time go up in flames with the riot there, prisoners rioting in Waikiria? And I remember looking back and thinking nobody's doing anything. There seems to be literally nothing happening. How does how do things get that out of control? Because at one point, for one day a week, that used to be my workplace, and uh, it was, yeah, it it a shadow ran down my spine thinking of you know what is going on, and yet we seem to have, uh, you know, cops available for force against protesters. I remember during COVID different uh, places cops coming because there's someone's not wearing a mask or something peace justice and strong institutions yeah well we have another thing coming there
4: well a (laughs) lot of our institutions have been absolutely weakened over my lifetime uh you think of what we considered our institutions um property rights basic freedoms you know right to free speech all that sort of stuff how they've been interrupted in the last three to ten years uh, yeah it wasn't just the last three years it was a slow creep but the last three years it's been unbelievably um speedy the way that our institutions have been eroded and um you know i never forget the former prime minister's um acceptance speech or victory speech on the night of the 2020 election she talked about all the uh just just transitions being kind the well-being all that sort of stuff right out of the um the uh, Biden playbook and uh, and the old class swabs um, playbook, so it was all there for us to see. Uh, but apparently, for those of us that bought it out at the time, we were we were the crazies. We were the crazies.
5: Well, what worries me with anything anything being involved, um, the word justice um, and the United Nations just uh, you know uh, uh, oxymoronic. They they don't go together at all just you know the United Nations is one of the most corrupt organizations on the face of the planet. Um and their their big sculpture outside their buildings in Manhattan um is a is a revolver with a with a knot in the barrel. And it worries me that the United Nations want to under their peace justice thing, um they want to disarm everybody. And you know and the that that is very, very dangerous ground for any country. You know, we've got a long history about disarmament in countries, but for the UN to bring their form of, of peace and justice um, to New Zealand, that is something that is coming for us too.
3: And the you know, others. And, yeah, and they, no. they should,
5: yeah, it should never be allowed to happen.
3: No. And the other thing there is, is, as with any dictate that comes down from the UN, there's an the aspect of cultural Marxism that comes into it. So looking at the Aotearoa People's Report and their commentary on SDG 16, the one we are discussing right now, it's again about the ethnicity of people who are in jails, the ethnicity of who are being sentenced and so on. And uh, that that is very worrying because... Police, as one institution, I would have thought, would be colorblind, would be neutral, because a crime is a crime, and it has a victim, it has a perpetrator. But suddenly, everything is now. We've got judges who are now handing out some sentences that are uh, raising eyebrows, even for someone like me, who's yeah, you know, you're used to seeing a bit of crime around in India, because uh, people are getting what uh, cultural letters being written, and suddenly a certain amount is being. Uh, wiped off their sentence there's talks we've heard green mps talk yeah. about the fact that you know we need to do away with prisons they don't do anything but pray spare a thought for the perpetrator i mean don i know you've not been uh, you've you've had theft and burglary it hasn't been serious crime thank goodness but uh, they seem to think uh you just have a talk with the perpetrator and everything will be well and good let's have a be mates again
4: yeah, it's interesting. I did think um, of going along to the restorative justice uh, justice day to um, meet the perpetrators until I got the letter from um, the detective. And it was in my spam file for a week, so I didn't sort of see it straight away. So he's probably a bit miffed. He signed himself off. He, uh, him. <laughs> And then it, then, it, then it had a whole lot of logos underneath it that don't add anything to my life. I couldn't care whether the guy was gay or the policeman are gay, but I don't need to have a rainbow um, um, uh, under under a letterhead for me or at the footer. So I just thought, no. And that so that made it for me. I didn't, there was a point where I did want to go and face these perpetrators. And then I thought, no, I am not giving those people the dignity of seeing my face. I've seen theirs because I saw it on my video. Mm. I don't need to see them uh, face to face. Uh, I want them to suffer the consequences for a long time in prison, which I think they have had. Mm. So, um, but you know, the first burglary here was uh, there had to be a whole lot in the ring, perhaps five or six on the day, but they got one person, gave him three years, three months. Um, He'll be out by Christmas this year. Uh, Why didn't they give him? If there was 10 perpetrators, but they only got one to put his hand up, why didn't they give him 33 years, 10 times three years, three months, uh, or thereabouts? That might have made the other one squeak. But no, one person takes the rap, and the others get off to keep going with their crime spree, which I'm sure they will have done.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: It's interesting, Don, that, you, you know, say you saw them on your, on your camera and again, too, you know, with the growing crime, um, rates we have, and, and so many more people now have private property cameras mm. and, and um, doorbell cams and all the rest of it. But that that again sends us into the trap on the other way that this is absolutely more digital data collection. Mm. You know, yeah, we've so, got to go, we've got to do this to to, to keep secure. So, so we had a we had a talk with a couple of policemen the other day that came into our community board, and they want to put security cameras down the main street of my town. Um, because our our local policeman might be 40 minutes away and and their re- rationale and reasoning behind this is that it is to keep us safe. Now I'm a photographer and all all a camera does is record a moment. My camera has never kept me safe in my life. you know and and when it comes to crime, a camera will only pick up the, in our area basically that whoever is traveling through going to the crime or coming from the crime so I'll only record that on a number plate scanner and and this whole um this whole keeping us safe thing with with facial recognition digital cameras um yep. right throughout town just feeds the whole Chinese or, or that industry a massive industry of of, of taking away your privacy
4: well, look, I understand your argument there, uh, Jill. I'm I uh, into voluntary surveillance of my own property, yeah, um, so I don't, I don't want this data to be shared with anybody, and, and that's why I'm anti the um, surveillance cameras downtown in our city yeah. because uh, the two point four or two point eight million they're going to spend shouldn't have to be spent if you had a civil society. If people had the respect for the property of others, um, you wouldn't need any surveillance cameras anywhere. Now, I have them in my property because I do want to know, uh, even if someone's coming to visit me legitimately and I'm not home, I can see yeah. them. Um, that, But that's, for me, it's a voluntary um, use. Yeah. It's when it's around a coercive surveillance um, regime, I just can't have it. And, of course, I know that's the fear of uh, people that worry about even better, like five and six and seven generation uh, internet um, uh, power Uh, They just worry about it being all too uh, pervasive in their lives, and yeah, I understand that.
5: Yeah, Yeah. I'm I'm all for private businesses, and you know, in our main street, for having surveillance cameras, and then if the if the security cameras, and then if the um, if something happens, the the police can have access to that.
6: Yes,
5: you know, but these these ones that go straight back to a massive database at a police station somewhere are a very dangerous thing to have. But that's their way of wanting to. get on top of the, the crime problem that they've already grown. Yep. Yeah, you know, so the like, socialist government so, has grown.
4: Yeah, so go. that's the nub of it. Fix mm. the problem from the genesis of it, and it starts really young in life. Teach children, teach young adults that the property of someone else is not yours. Amen. End. Amen.
3: Mm-hmm. Nothing more nothing more there. I think that's a good point to move on to SDG number 17. And uh, I've just forgotten, our uh, number is 2057. If you want to text us or email us at the rate right inbox at the rate right reality dot radio. Now, SDG 17 is the one that brings all the threads of everything we've done together. It talks about partnerships for the goal. Partnerships. So basically what it's talking about is how do you get private players in behind these, what do I call them, these socialist uh, utopian ideals. And in New Zealand, the way I see it, we see, we are seeing a whole lot of talk about public-private partnerships. We have, I mean, the Transmission Gully project was probably the biggest example of this in recent times. And boy, was it marred with uh, cost overruns, lack of transparency, always uh, you know being pushed back back and back not meeting any timelines all of these the way i see it is you, we now have private players into what should ideally be uh, state owned infrastructure and if you want to tell me that you have private money into public into massive public infrastructure projects and the private players don't want their pound of flesh um well,
4: Yeah, well, of course, everyone that invests a dollar wants a return. So nobody's going to be doing it to make friends, are they, uh, Jaspreet? And of course, you've just mentioned cost overruns. I think in Transmission Gully there was massive uh, cost overruns, and just look at the current fiasco around the uh, the Cook Strait ferries and the um, infrastructure at at each port. uh, How that's looking like a massive budget blowout. I mean, everyone wants a rate of return, um, and whether you like. If, if taxpayers or taxpayer owned entities can raise the capital and do the job, uh, I think that you're saying that that's how it should stay rather than letting other um, corporate interests in. Because we know what happens. Crony capitalism is alive and well in the world. And in fact, uh, the argument seems to be that while we think we've got governments because a lot of people mm. say we really haven't. We've got corporations controlling the government. So
3: I, I, I'm i one I of the know. ones that I, I completely agree. We have corporations controlling governments. Governments just seem to be central governments, just seem to be a change of guard. I am now reading from the Beehive release in May this year when it said the government is partnering with New Zealand Steel to deliver New Zealand's largest emissions reduction project to date, with half of the coal being used at Lend book steel to be replaced with electricity to recycle scrap steel. This is a classic example, as far as I'm concerned, of public-private partnerships or crony capitalism, as you would say, because this is public rate money, $140 million that was given to a private player for decarbonization. A player whose parent entity in Australia has a turnover of billions annually. Does beggars believe how can this be not be called out to be, you know, this is corruption? Those guys should be paying their own way. But this comes on the back of um the the COP28. The the World
5: Economic Forum has just announced that it wants 3.5 trillion dollars annually to decarbonize the world, and that money is going to come directly from us one way or another. It will be filtered through various organisations and PPPs and councils and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, that $3.5 trillion is is going to come at our expense. And, and this is how governments do it. You know, and, and how what our government is doing with decarbonisation and the cost of decarbonisation is going to cost New Zealanders for generations
3: and most of these uh, players are coming in uh, in either the green infrastructure or in the digital uh, space so wellington council it rolled out uh, it's preparing to roll out a new sensor network to collect data on traffic to better manage uh, you know evidence based decision making and they are partnering with this entity called viva city and who will be having all sorts of counts of users. And they say it will be anonymous. But regardless of what it is, that sort of data will be used for something, be it even for traffic pricing, as is uh, being mooted in Toronga and Auckland. So wherever you have these, you know, private players coming into public businesses, I, I have my doubts about it. And mostly those doubts are not being unfounded. Another example, Don, Sorry, you go please. Well,
4: I was going to say everything should be based on evidence, uh, evidence uh, uh, collected and datum uh, data, data um, aggregation, and then you make a decision. It didn't matter whether it was back in the old days we did it on the um, in, a, in a booklet or in a, in a piece of paper. Now it's mm. done uh, electronically. Everything is it should be effectively um, researched before it's presented. Um, so I think your only issue really is about. Who the cash is coming from and who the cash goes to.
3: Don, whosoever puts in the cash, they would call the shots, Absolutely. wouldn't they? How, how do you believe that? I mean, look at this announcement at uh, COP28 about recloaking mm. Mother Earth. I can't, I won't even attempt to pronounce the Maori name that they have for it because I cannot. It's a tongue twister. So, recloaking the earth, uh, they're talking uh, of. One of the largest rewilding projects, 2.1 million hectares of New Zealand's uh, native forest to be revived, or somehow now being evidence based that this much we are, we've planted in natives. This one is going to, they've not announced yet, but these sort of things need money, don't they? And there's a wow. whole lot of private players that have lined up already from the Tyndall Foundation, the warehouse, and other things already over there. Who will be, when they, probably using public money there, and who will probably be getting some sort of carbon credits or something else out of that? We have had similar things at agri Zero, which is the government has partnered with the private players and you know co-ops, primary industry co-ops, and they are gunning for a greater reduction in uh, animal bo- uh, ruminant methane. So. Each time private player comes in, they have an axe to grind. This is not just purely altruistic motives alone. They are moving towards an agenda, and that's where they come.
4: And going back to the um, the re native uh, pl- planting natives on 2.1 million hectares, uh, if you analyze it, they're they're talking 12 billion. By the way. Um, as you say god knows where that comes from uh, but there will be no free lunch for anybody there but the interesting thing is we've got um we've got a third of this country in the dock estate they're talking about um how deer and possums are denuding uh those that estate how about you just fix the dock estate as best you can i mean we've got the predator free 2050 stuff going on surely that's all part of the process but these guys want to go wider they want to take by the look of it land that um may have been useful for for farming by the look of it and put that into native trees and on top of that where were they when there was the um ETS forestry push for pine trees on good farmland where were they yeah uh, look it's it's a vexed issue but there's no doubt you always as you say Jaspreet, it's around follow the money and um if you have no principles and it's all about money, you will um, take money from anybody, uh, probably your grandmother as well, if you could.
5: Well, we've we've already got that and, and we can see that now with the, the complete theft of $400 million and, and counting with three waters. Oh,
4: yeah, that's and, horrible. And,
5: and, you know, everybody, I really, everybody should get into their local council and just put a stop to this now until, until this is unwound and this is, I don't know the companies involved. I don't know where this money has gone to, but I have got a fair idea that this all comes back to public-private partnerships. Now, there's an awesome little – if people are interested in the subject, and I'm not a business person, I don't understand the language. Um, there's the New Zealand Institute uh, – no, the New Zealand Infrastructure Commission, and their, their website is really interesting, and it shows – on the, the New Zealand um, PPP models and, and how they work, and one of them, and this comes with three waters: the separation of ownership retained by the public sector and financing provided by the private sector partner to provide meaningful risk transfer and management. Okay, wow. so it means that they're going to be they're going to be bigger enough to to carry some financial weight and probably not go broke but if they do they've got us to fall back on mm. and it means that they manage an asset that they that we actually already own you know and and that's that's how public private partnerships work so so we we get the ownership of something that we've that we already own and then we we have to pay somebody to be able to use what we already own so it's much like renting your own house mm. at, at an unaffordable rate right. Yep. Yep. Right, and, and we I saw see. it with the we saw it with the electricity company in Dunedin. I think it was Delta. It it went into a corporate mode and and all the money got siphoned off at the top, and they didn't spend any of it on maintenance. And then when all their poles rotted out and they had to maintain them, the price for that went onto the electricity
4: bill for the consumer. Well, that's true, but just a little bit of a correction, Jill. The reason a large chunk of uh, the revenue from the electricity company didn't go back into the maintenance to do the poles and wires and update them was that the Welk Dunedin Stadium was requiring significant cash through Dunedin City Holdings. Uh, right. hence, hence, the over big payments of dividends from the electricity consumers you paid for the Dunedin City Stadium, effectively, and you're going to pay for the repairs of your network for many years to come. In fact, I think the total was to get it back up to standard over five years for $560 million for the networks that were controlled by the Dunedin City Council. So, look, um, yeah, that's what happens. That's what happens when you've got um, deception going on in your local community. Yeah, it's great to have the stadium, great to have it, but uh, the... Yeah, the people that wanted to use it didn't necessarily pay for it. Uh, but the consumers of Dunedin City uh, electricity, including some into the Queenstown area and the wider Otago area, and the Otago ratepayers rate paid for it, not the users. Yeah. yeah. Completely right. I mean, that's staggering. Well, it's just how it's worked. It happens in many of our big cities, that sort of stuff, where um, there's a holding company that demands dividends uh, from their from their infrastructure assets like ports and electricity companies. And that one in Dunedin was a classic case, uh, about as bad as it gets, actually.
5: Well, I think we're going to see a lot more of it, and especially, you know, with councils, with councils talking about selling off assets, which they are because they're all going broke, um, A lot, I can see a lot more public-private partnerships coming in and, and the eventual just slipping away of, of something, things that we've already owned and, and stuff that we've already paid for. Wow. The, the public-private partnership really worries me because it's you know it's the crux of the these goals, and and everything comes back to the money, and when you go down those holes and look at where it goes, it nearly always ends up at the same place, which is a, a black rock or um, into into U, UN organisations or world economic or organisations. Yeah, NGOs.
3: I mean, it's fearless. Listeners, if you want to have a look at this Pure Advantage program, I'll encourage you to go to their website, www.pureadvantage.org. And uh, talking of this rewilding 2.1 million hectares, and you see the players that are there. I am looking at their About Us section, uh, section, and it says that Pure Advantage has put in a submission on the biodiversity credit system for Aotearoa, New Zealand, jointly with the Environmental Defense Society the World Wildlife Fund, Forest and Bird, and so on. And there you have it. Those are your private players. Straight away, at this point, if that is 2.1 million hectares, the way I, I see it just going into virtually private hands, they'll be getting the advantage out of this. Of course, we have all sorts of excuses now being given why you can't go go into Fjordland or why you can't go into uh, Haraki Gulf and Boaties are carrying this algae. But this has been happening time and again. And each time this happens, it happens because your elected representatives have been superseded by unelected people in various positions of power. And uh, we uh, just left on saying, hey, hang on, what the hell happened here? But by then, the ship has sailed. So public-private partnerships, SDG number 17, you will see more and more of this in the green financing sphere or the digital dystopia sphere as well. There's
5: another little part to this. I'm going to throw this in, Jaspreet. Sure. Um, You know, because it's the the public-private partnership comes into the massive infrastructure, which is, you know, solar panels, wind farms, new highways, bridges and roads. And I... I wonder this, I, this is just in the back of my mind how much this is tied into the debt imperialism of the Chinese One Belt One Road. Um, but like you said, all of this money has got to come from somewhere. Yes, and that's and I, I know that I know that um, One Belt One Road you know has been touted as, a, as a, a possible investment for people in New Zealand who are looking to invest in infrastructure. So that's that's another arm. It's another arm of the money branch of it is is this debt imperialism. We get all the stuff done. We simply cannot afford to 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 pay it back. So the asset is is then taken. And, and this has been going on right throughout the Pacific um, and, and other parts of the world too. With with and look at one, what happens when
3: someone like Sri Lanka defaults. Yeah, they lose everything. They lose everything. We don't mm. want to be there. So, the, so, so, so the, uh,
4: the upshot seems to be listening to you too uh, is um, if everything's so convoluted and awkward to understand, then it's clearly not um, as up as upright and, and and kosher as you would want. Uh, nations and uproot. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so. Look, You're you, funny
3: get,
5: tonight, Don.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, and by the way, just going back, I just, while we we're talking, I researched that the Dock estate is 8 million hectares. So I hope I'm not making, um, uh, jumping to an incorrect conclusion when I talk about 2.1 million hectares. Whether that is part of the Dock estate they're talking, or whether it's private land for this um, rewilding, I don't know. But um, let's wait and see what comes out in the media in the next day or two. I may have it wrong. Yeah. But
5: it still fits in with the United Nations plan to rewild sure. and sure. to you know it, you know it's all part of it whether it's done through doc or whether it's done through, through private. Um, uh, with the goal 17 translation that I've got here, Jasper, I'll just quickly read it out. Um, strengthen the means of implementation and revitalize the global partnership for sustainable development. And the translation of that is end national sovereignty, placing every country under the socio communist rule of a totalitarian one world government. Yep. Green infrastructure,
3: yeah. digital dystopia—all yeah. of this, this, this all adds up to this. But boy, have you had some fun uh, translating these goals Jill? Gosh, uh, oh, v- you've yes, done this with VFF, and I thank you for joining me on the Asia journey as well.
4: Well, you're welcome. Uh, look, you two have done a great job for our listeners. I look, I hope listeners have enjoyed the previous uh 15 goals that you've talked about i it's it's god's work i mean i couldn't do it so fantastic you have and uh look bad enough having 17 goals when you look at the <laughs> 107 69 sub pillars and then try Indicators. to understand all that um no wonder people's eyes glaze over so look um you've done very well and i think our listeners have been well served by you too so fantastic thank you very much
3: Right. And with that, we'll call an end to this segment. Don and I will be back soon after the break, but we will give Jill a break for now. Thank you so much for joining us on Greenwash this morning. And thank you, Jill. Back in a moment. Thank you. Bye.
1: Just Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality
0: Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.
3: Welcome back to Greenwash. You're with me, Just and Dawn. And I hope you enjoyed that uh, roundup, the final last two SDGs that we covered, this time with Dawn as well in the house. Mm-hmm. And time now for a few emails and feedback that we've received. Owen's interview was very well received last week, Dawn.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, and we've Uh, got one here. Say that it was um, it was great. Only heard bits, but share. We'll share the replay. Well, we need you to share it uh, far and wide, of course, and so it's available on our replay section and as are all our our replay uh, interviews. So great hearing from uh, people that are still playing the replays and and likely to share them. But he, this person thanks us for, and thanks Owen for exposing the evil. So because it is all evil as this person says. so yeah look you know we've got to be careful where as well we've got to be sensibly um talking about this stuff and facts always win in the end science yes science and um and the rigor around science and how it's presented when we can't keep telling hawkies and getting away with it
3: not not at my
4: expense anyway (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> no, no, neither at mine and no matter how much of mainstream media keeps pushing the narrative uh, mark has uh text us in a similar way in just written dawn good submission in owen jennings interview the price of liberty is eternal vigilance it yours, sure mm-hmm. and we someone said we get the government we deserve i agree with that we do get the government I, i'd add the bureaucrats we deserve as well because mm-hmm. what we put up with that's where we are setting our benchmark aren't we that we are Willing to accept this. We'll go along with this.
4: Well, that's how it's been. And it does bother me at this very moment how it's going to play in Wellington. There does seem to be some resistance for the new government's directives by the senior executives running departments. Um, let's hope they dwell long and hard over the Christmas break about their future.
3: Oh, yes. And their country's future. You know, they are, <laughs> they are a part of the same nation. Whatever are you contributing to nation building? Or are you essentially destroying it, for lack of a better word? But I, I don't use that word in jest. Some of these policies are destroying us from the inside out. And we'll be wow. discussing a few of those with our guests later today. There's another text from Shelley from Capiti. And we will have a guest today from Capiti, Shelley. Hi, jaspreet and Dawn. I enjoyed your interview with the Manhattan contrarian. That's Francis Menton, the great co- city and humor between you three for listeners who have not yet checked out the manhattan contrarian blog i urge you to do so he's got uh, francis has got wit the technical expertise to deal with after it comes from a lifetime of experience and he is not pulling any punches he's got a book out there but for now he puts out some very interesting blog posts very quickly
4: yeah two minutes of your time every week and Mm. You, you get his thoughts. And um, that's about all it takes. I mean, I'm notoriously poor at reading uh, compared to Jaspreet, but the Manhattan Contrarian is one I do read. And, you know, there, there's lots of uh, things in the blogosphere. There's lots of things that we could research. And everyone says, oh, but you just cherry pick the, you know, the ones that suit you. Well, we do. But yeah. um, in, in the end, I do the, the ones that are perhaps the other side of the spectrum and the ones that I don't like, I still read the odd ones of those just to make sure that I'm staying on message for myself, my own sanity, because man, there's some crazies out there.
3: <laughs> there are some crazies out there and I'm sure a few would put you and me into that category.
2: Yeah, of, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, we
3: also got uh, some feedback here from Mark. And Mark is from Australia and he said, uh, I just would love your knowledge, attention to detail. Was I also was on the recent VFF holiday Zoom call where you mentioned the 2014 IPCC model versus the 2021 IPCC model. Uh, keep up the good work. We run a resistance substract in Australia that employs ridicule very powerfully. And the climate nonsense is a serial topic. And I replied to Mark there. But if you are interested, have a look at this from across the Tasman, the Substack, Australia.substack.com. And boy, there, there, is, there is some interesting stuff there. And, and I like sarcasm. It is employed very, very effectively on this blog. So in, in case you were wondering, 2014 was the AR5, United Nations IPCC report, which said don't use RCP 8.5. Or at that point, they were still a bit wishy-washy that, oh, you can use it for some scenarios. Then they followed it by the 2021 AR6 report, in which they very clearly said RCP 8.5, this particular climate model, is implausible and unlikely to unfold. Guess what? We're still using it in New Zealand.
4: Oh, boy, did I watch you use it this week, Jaspreet. Et- or challenges that you use at your own council man um have they got some learnings to do they got some reading over christmas i think you could you could you could fill their inboxes up with um, stuff to read that would educate them because i'm going to be paying for their nonsense if you don't stop it so it's on your head
3: no, talk about pressure that
4: that, that uh no, doc, i'm being facetious but it's it's awful how uh how lame and how meek and mild they are about council recommendations uh, because someone recommends it, oh, it must mean that it's okay. Just don't challenge it. Thank you for challenging it, Jaspreet. Um, we owe you.
3: Yeah, I, I owe you the, co- I owe the community. I represent on. Mm. And mm, true. Now, science is where it is at, and it's, it's going to be interesting year ahead. I have no doubt. But we've got an interesting show ahead lined up for you. We will have uh, a, a, one of our regular contributors, Peter Foster, coming on.
4: Yeah, and he's going to talk. Uh, first question I ask him is about well, explain what a jet stream really is because I yeah you know, we hear about jet streams and um, I didn't have a clue what it really was. I can talk about climate change and stuff, but uh, clearly didn't yeah. know about the mixing uh, up upstairs. And uh, and then he talks about more quirky little facts of the Antarctica uh, from his visits and knowledge of his readings about Antarctica. It's fantastic stuff. I mean, it just talks about a lake that has a um, bottom temperature of 25 degrees. And you'd wonder how that, how, could, how could that happen in uh, Antarctica. But there you go. And after that, we have Salima.
3: A crusader power excellence mm. from Capity Coast. And Salima will be talking about some of what I, not just I, most councils across the country are grappling with, because like it or not, we are a long, narrow coastal country. And sea level rises and how Salima, who is the secretary of the crew, as they call it, CRU, the Coastal Ratepayers United Group at the Capiti Coast, fighting for good science at their councils because it has been affecting their properties, property valuations, pretty much their entire lives. Mm. So... We'll have Salima bringing up the rear today. And so sit back and listen. And Don and I will be back after this short segment with uh, Peter.
0: Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. And
4: back with Greenwashed, uh, we have Peter Foster, scientist, North Otago, farmer, teacher, but a general all-around good bugger, coming back uh, for the fourth time to give us a bit of, um, bit of a tutorial on more things weather, Antarctica and perhaps climate change, if you want to link it all in. So, Peter, welcome back to RCR. Look, you've been a great contributor in 2023. So um, we've really enjoyed your company as our listeners. So um, let's start with where we've been chatting offline a bit. Let's start with these jet streams that you talk about uh, a lot. What What is a jet stream?
2: Well, um, yes, to put that in context first, uh, I can understand why a lot of people, think that climate change is is real and it's to be worried about because you get like last January in Auckland where they had a a, a month of just constant rain, Mm. unchanging. And it was blamed on climate change, but it's not. It was due to the jet stream. So perhaps we should look at what the jet stream is. And it's it's not easy without diagrams in front of you, but perhaps we start with the idea that the equator of the Earth uh, in that 30 north and 30 south, that central area of the equator, uh, is, is where heat is coming into the planet much more than it's leaving. So, uh, And then if we go to the other extreme, to Antarctica, between the pole and 60-degree latitude, it is losing heat much more than it is gaining. And so if we had no transport of warmth, uh, south or cold north, then the, the planet would be very, very frigid down south and would be cooking in the middle. Mm. Uh, and it's to do with this transport of, of, of heat. Now, the uh, as you go across from the equator or perhaps, yes, yeah, we go across from the equator down to the pole, uh, the Earth travels at different speeds. So we don't think about it often, but The Earth does a a spin every 24 hours, and its diameter is 40,000 kilometres divided by 24, gives you a speed of just under 1,700 kilometres an hour if you're at the equator. And of course, that's dragging the atmosphere with it, but there's a slight lag. The atmosphere being dragged is going a little bit slower than the equator, the ground underneath. if you're on the equator, you've got a constant easterly wind, and the main wind in the equator area is, is easterly because of that drag. The Earth's rolling over from west to east, and uh, and the wind's not quite, quite following as fast, so you get this easterly wind. Now, when you get to New Zealand, to about uh, between Oamaru and Dunedin, the latitude of 45, then the... the um, that the speed at which the Earth is travelling is, is about 1,200 kilometres an hour. And between there and the pole, it decreases very rapidly because at the pole, all you would be doing is rotating on the spot for 24 hours. You have zero speed in any direction. Now, the problem is that the, the Earth drags the atmosphere around with it. And when you get to below New Zealand... The atmosphere being dragged by or being carried down from the tropical areas is being dragged at a faster speed than the land is moving underneath it. And so we get faster and faster wind speeds as we go below New Zealand. The mariners used to talk about the roaring 40s, which was good for sort of getting around the world quick. But they didn't like going further south because further south was the furious 50s and the screaming 60s. Because around the coast of Antarctica, the winds are horrific. And with no land to block the, other than South America, no land to block the passage, it is probably the most violent seas in the world. Uh, now, that, that wind speed, of course, as you go up higher, the winds increase because the the land will be slowing. And even though the land's going slower, it'll be slowing the surface winds but up above, uh, the high-speed winds. And, and that's uh, so between New Zealand and uh, Antarctica uh, is where we find the polar jet stream. Now, it, it does actually have another dimension to it in that the, the winds from, uh, say, 30 uh, degrees of latitude down to 45, the winds are generally coming uh, from the north heading towards the south and below that, from Antarctica, cold air descends on the Antarctica and it spreads out and comes north. So at this junction of about 40 degrees 45 degrees, you get uh, the cold Antarctic air coming up and meeting the warm subtropical air going down. And of course where those two meet, you get rainlands snow and winds and gale and everything and we're we sit on the verge of all of that so the jet stream is where these two meet and go upwards and it's typically about 100 to 200 kilometers an hour if you go up to that that altitude yeah
4: right and so right now here we are in december 2023 15th of december in fact when we're recording this you've got some interesting sort of observations right now
2: um do you want to sort
4: of tell us about that
2: yeah, well, um, I've just been looking at the the wind charts at the moment, and uh, there's a, a an anticyclone sitting just north of of New Zealand, and an anticyclone has anti cyclonic anti clockwise winds. So on its western edge, it's up near New Caledonia between New Caledonia and Brisbane, and it's bringing warm air from the North Tasman Sea right down towards the coast of New Zealand. Now, on the other side is a depression coming in, and depression has clockwise winds, and the two working together to carry that airstream right down to the coast of Antarctica. And it's crossing over the South Island at the moment, uh, and where the westerly cold air is meeting the air from the, the Tasman, uh, you've got this band of of probably heavy rain that extends right down to Antarctica. It'll be snow further down, of course. Uh, so it is transporting this air right from the subtropics down to Antarctica. Yeah, We have had occasions when we had some snow a few months back when the reverse happened, and that uh, combination of highs and lows was bringing snow up from... From the East Antarctica right up over New Zealand, so these this called meridional transport, and it, it's, it transports um, a lot of heat uh, in both directions. Yeah, if we go back, um, if we go back to twenty ten, because there's another factor about these jet streams, or what they do is they determine where the highs and the lows form, and Normally, there's a a pattern called a zonal pattern where they just meander gently around that latitude of 45, 50 degrees and they perform a block. They actually stop air going further into north or south and they isolate the Antarctic, the polar regions. But when we have low solar activity, then the jet stream starts to buckle and produce this big wavy pattern, which is called a meridional jet stream. This thing was as a big wavy pattern. Now, if you get so many waves uh, around the, the the globe, I think if you get five waves around the globe, then the, the tail of one joins to the head of the other, and the whole lot becomes stationary. So they can sit. So you've heard of blocking highs. Well, blocking highs are when the jet stream is buckled and it's uh, becomes stationary and highs will sort of form and disappear and reform in the same spot. And that has several consequences. One is that whatever weather you're getting, you're going to keep getting for a week or a month. Uh, and the other is that where you've got an anticyclone, you've got clear skies and so the sun comes in and heats the ocean and you get a marine heat wave. You know, we've had quite a few marine heat waves in the last few years around New Zealand. And that's precisely because these highs are forming constantly over the same place. And and so the sun is heating the water and things get warm, as you would expect. Yeah.
3: So, that sounds so much uh, that's that, that sounds so much more complicated than just pinning it all down on human emissions, doesn't it? Stop, oh, stop yes. driving your cars out out of COP twenty eight. And this can be also so this all of this just like that? Doesn't sound oh, that look, simple.
2: The, the, the atmosphere is absolutely chaotic. And anyone who thinks they can forecast, their, they can't even tell you what's coming in two weeks, let alone tell you what's coming in 50 years. Quite ludicrous. Anyway, oh. about in uh, back in 2010, I mean, these things are not new. Back in 2010, there was a, a jet stream atmospheric river from North Africa up to Moscow and for a month Moscow had a heat wave
6: and
3: uh,
2: Mm -hmm. uh, on the reverse side of that of course Pakistan got deluged for a month, had enormous floods that carried on for over a month while this stationary high carried this atmospheric river Uh, so There was another instance because these things get used by the alarmists, um, not for good reasons. There was a case a year ago in March last year where uh, an atmospheric river, well, sorry, where they, they put it through the media that there's been a heat wave in East Antarctica. It's 40 degrees warmer than normal. And, of course, all the alarm bells go, yes, the ice is going to melt. Oh. The sea level is going to rise. We're all in deep trouble with this. But what they didn't tell you was that the heat wave, two things they didn't tell you of crucial importance. One was that the the maximum temperature over East Antarctica was minus 10. Now, at minus 10, the ice is not going to melt. So there's no problem with my Antarctica melting. The second thing they didn't tell us, tell people, was that the heat did not generate in Antarctica. It wasn't Antarctica getting hot. What it was was an atmospheric river that carried warm air from central Australia down over Antarctica. And so it's not... Um, and the next thing about that is that if you take warm air and put it over in, in Antarctica... You're putting it in the one place on earth where it was heat will be lost to space at the highest possible rate mm-hmm. because antarctica the atmosphere is only thin the troposphere is only about nine kilometers deep and your east antarctica is about two kilometers high so you don't have much space uh before before you're losing it all to all that energy to space very very quickly and so the the um the jet stream acts as a way of carrying warm air from the tropics into the polar regions and carrying cold air back up and cooling the the central part of the planet. And it's a very uh, important um, thing in climate. And without it, the world would be much more extreme. I uh, uh, so, never
3: heard that mentioned as much. But you were talking of the heat wave, Peter, and uh, it was mentioned as recently... Uh, in my council, as a couple of days ago, yes. in the context of uh, rising sea level modelling and the fact that Antarctica is melting, and you know, Southland, we are in the middle. We are facing this. It's amazing how policy and planners and literally everyone has been, you know.
2: It is, and, and the other this. thing with the other thing with that, just breed is, is the selective use of data to make oh. whatever case you want to make. You know, of i can't reconcile some of the figures i have some people tell us that the gravity measurements say that antarctica is losing ice in fact what do they say it's losing it's losing um, 92 what's it 92 uh, gigatons a year 92 oh. billion tons a year uh, that sounds enormous doesn't it I mean,
3: the the other figure that was said was an ice sheet the size of 10 New Zealands has broken away.
2: Yes. But the thing about that saying things like 92 gigatons is it ignores the fact that that the ice sheet weighs 24,380,000 gigatons. Uh, And if you take 90-something gigatons of that, it would take... even at 150 gigatons a year, which is what they're claiming, it would take 162,000 years for Antarctica to melt. So I don't <laughs> think it's going to worry me. <laughs> I'm not going to challenge your maths. That sounds nothing I need to worry about, Peter. Well, uh, well, the thing is that, that uh, other people say that Antarctica has increased, and we get the same thing with Greenland, where you hear reports of Greenland's losing mass, but the mass balance... Data carried by the, the uh, Scandinavians shows that Greenland did lose ice from about um, 97 through to to 10, 2010. Since then, it's been gaining ice, and is is, is only a tad shorter where it was uh, 40 30 years ago. Uh, the Jakobshånd, I'm not sure how that's how you pronounce it, but that major glacier in Greenland. That was retreating for a while during that period, and everyone got excited about the the glaciers retreating. We're in doom. But it's been advancing again and building. Uh, So these things are cyclic. Hmm. And we had the same thing. We're talking about the sea ice around Antarctica. And the the sea ice varied from... 1986 was a low period, just under... 18 million uh, square kilometers and 2014 was a high period of just under 20 uh, million square kilometers and it's now dropped back it's not back as far as it was in 1986, but it's it's, it's dropped back up in a couple of million and of course this is great cause for alarm but two things first is we've only had a good handle on it for 40 years. We Mm. haven't got any idea what the record is before that. And the other thing is that when it was advancing, steadily advancing from 86 through 2014, uh, uh, Professor Rennick got a grant of $800,000 to investigate the idea that the increase was caused by stronger offshore winds. Now, what we have to understand about the the sea ice is that when they measure the extent of the sea ice, any bit of ocean that has more than 15% ice is regarded as in the extent figures. Yeah, if you've got 15% ice, and that'll be particularly so for a few hundred uh, kilometers on the outer fringe of the sea ice as it forms. But if you've got... um, 15%. fifteen percent, you've got an awful lot of room for compression if the wind blows that surface ice together, or for spreading if it blows it apart. But what we don't know is how much of the current loss is due to being compacted or not compacted or by warming. So there's a lot of guesswork goes on. And you know, looking back at climate things over years, you'd say a lot of things are cyclic. They have periods where they increase and then they decrease. And we don't understand all of the reasons why. It's very presumptuous to say, oh, this is due to climate change. Well, at the moment, the Antarctic sea ice seems reasonably stable. Um, now, we we mentioned last time, too, about a, an iceberg. And what I didn't talk about then was, was the fact that I talked about coming off the glaciers, the glaciers that are flowing out to sea. But in fact, the major cause of of what they call the tabular icebergs is carving from the ice shelves. You know, the the ice shelves are floating ice. Mm. So, for example, um, below New Zealand, we have the Ross Ice Shelf. And the Ross Ice Shelf is a huge area about the size of France, twice the size of New Zealand and it's like a big, huge bay, like a V-shaped bay that goes right into Antarctica. And all the glaciers on either side of the V are pouring their ice down into the sea, and it's all joined up to form one big ice mass, which is about 900 metres thick, and extends right out to, to from Ross Island across the bay to give this ice shelf. So you've got an ice front there, which is hundreds of kilometres long, and that just keeps moving out to sea. And of course, with, with winds and, and tide and storms, that starts to flex at various points because it's all floating. Now, the, in the past, uh, when we've had interglacials, so remember the interglacials are the warm spells we get every 100,000 years, and they last for about 16,000, 17,000 years. And then we go back into the freezer, um, all the previous interglacials, the Ross Ice Shelf has broken out. And they can tell it's broken out. They did a drilling program off the coast of, uh, just opposite Scott, um, Ross Island. They did this drilling into the sediments. And where the, where the uh, uh, glacier is carrying sediments from the land, it picks up boulders and bits and pieces from the land and it gets out to the edge and it drops them onto the seafloor. So you get these boulders and debris that's come from the land. And then once the sea ice is broken out, then that stops, of course, and all you've got is the um, the normal sort of very fine sediments that get washed uh, through the ocean. So you see this band of quite different material every 100,000 years except for the present interglacial where it hasn't broken out. Uh, And so it tells us that the other interglacials have been warmer than now. And if it breaks out, well, that's fine. It'll reform again in a thousand years or whatever. Uh, We shouldn't get carried away. We don't have to fear a warmer world. So, Yeah, well, look, uh, there's all these
4: things that lay people have no idea about. Um, Certainly the media doesn't want to uh, give us the the good news they like to give us the bad news um because it's not convenient to talk about you know more serious stuff uh more stuff that's uh, the 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 honest brokerage of of facts is is very awkward to find you've given us a a wee list of quirky little um facts uh that i'd like to go through too peter um yeah some intriguing
2: stuff about the temperatures on lake vanda for instance yes well um Just to remind you, Lake Vanda is about five kilometres long, about one and a quarter kilometres wide in the right valley, the dry valleys of Antarctica, and it's fed by this glacial, uh, coastal glacier uh, coming down the only river in Antarctica called the Onyx, which drains into into Lake Vanda. Now, Lake Vanda's got no natural outlet, so the height of the lake is dependent on the climate and when the climate is warming, then the lake rises. And when the, when the, when the big freeze comes on, the, the, no water goes in and it gradually uh, sublimes, evaporates, and the, the level drops. Um, so in the last 20,000 years ago, then the, the lake level would have been right down very low. Uh, and what happens is all the salt in the lake gets concentrated into the bottom mm. uh, bit, and then when the when the when the climate warms, fresh water layers on top. It can't penetrate the salt layer, so it just layers on top. And what that happens then is the sun shines through and warms the water underneath, but that warm water can't rise to the surface, so it just stays there. And so you get this situation where you have this salty layer, in fact there's several salty layers with differing times where it's been the uh, lake there was gone right down and then come back again. So you've got differing layers, salt layers at the bottom but then the, you've got the fresh water on top and three metres of ice on top of that uh, which melts around the edges in the summer but um, and reforms and that is hmm, a side of one of the scary things when we first got to Vander and which was late October of uh, 85 was that the ice that had formed uh, you've got the old ice that's there always and that's white as you'd expect it to be but the stuff that formed over the winter just prior to us arriving was pitch black it was like um, you were driving the tractor over this ice and you knew this is, this has got to be three meters plus thick, but it was quite scary, just looking into this black abyss uh, beneath you, with no no indication of depth, and you know you're just looking down into the, <laughs> the depths of Lake Vanda. Um, yeah, so so that it seems surprising to me that that uh, Trevor Chin had this program of. Measuring the heights of these lakes in the in the dry valleys, and with uh, with the climate warming at the time, Vanda was rising at a net of three hundred millimeters a year. Uh, but they never carried on that survey. After Trevor closed his program, and retired, they never carried on. You would think, with everything being so focused on the climate these days, that and Vanda being such a, a climate indicator. That they would have carried on there, but no, no, no. That's
4: no. well, in interesting. I, I think I thought you'd made an error in your your text to us. Um you know you talked about the bottom of Lake Vanda is 25 degrees C. Yes, how,
3: could that, that's right. how
2: could that How could that how could that be? Oh well that's that's due to being warmed by the sunlight going through the ice uh, in times when it's been dry. Mm. But you see, the rock is a very good insulator. Mm. Um for example, we we had a, a, a deep freeze for Vanda and our deep freeze was a hole in the ground that was about uh, two and a half, three metres deep and, uh, you know, like a small room that you climb down a ladder to get in and they had made a an insulated cap on top and I measured the temperature of that rock late in the season in January and it was minus 22. So, all we had to do was carry stuff down and store it with an insulating roof in the rock, and and it, it was a good deep freeze for the whole of summer. So the rock never got warm uh, over the summer, and so it's a good insulator. So the same with Lake Vander. Uh, it, it, will have been, it will have warmed the rock in the bottom of the lake, and it just retains its warmth. So so just to get a
4: comparison, Peter, um think of the ocean off where we live, you know, just say Fovo Strait or just around the uh forty five south. What's the
2: average sort of water temperature? Would it be eight to ten degrees centigrade? Probably, I'm not sure. Probably a bit mm. maybe a bit colder even. A bit colder even. So look, uh, 25 degrees is is right up there. I mean, it's uh, oh, it po- positively tepid. Yes, 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 it is. If get getting, getting down to it, it's That's also exceedingly—it's exceedingly corrosive. They, uh, some of the, uh, some of the scientists drop little things to the bottom of the lake to dredge the sediments or to pick up what sediments were falling down there, and they pull their thing up, and the wire had corroded. So, uh, so the chemicals that are down there are not exactly friendly. <laughs> and so, look, there's a whole lot of facts, uh, but we're running
4: short on, on time. Um, the, the other key point, well, an, an interesting point you make is that the lake, and you call it the puddle, never freezes at minus 60, the Don Juan Pond. How That's could that right. be? How could that be well, so?
2: The, the, um, the minerals that are being washed into that uh, in the summer are mainly calcium, calcium chloride, and when the concentration of calcium chloride, because calcium chloride is very, very soluble, and when the concentration gets, well, I forget what it gets to, but at a certain concentration, because any salt will lower the freezing point. So, for example, the the sea, um, in, in McMurdo Sound, the freezing point is minus one point nine six because of this amount of salt in the water, lowers the freezing point. So you get this Don Juan Pond, and the concentration, uh, I, I forget what it is, but they, they put a, because um, when you get back there in the spring, the, the lake has dried up, but they put a, an automatic recording uh, station that recorded the waves on the lake as well as the temperature, and that showed that, that there were still waves on the lake in the, it's only a little thing. Um, or it would be the size of a football field or maybe a bit bigger. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it had waves on it right through the middle of the winter when the temperature was minus 60. So it showed that, that um, the composition of that was such that the water just didn't freeze. Mm.
4: Well, as, as we've talked about, I mean, we, we're going to have to sort of wind this up. We've talked about um, a lot of intrigue. Uh, yeah, Antarctica is sort of the continent continent of intrigue. And, you know, we listen to news, news media that says uh, it, it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a great indicator of, of global warming. Um, they don't seem to say it's an indicator of much else. Um, and they haven't talked about, for instance, the West uh, volcan- Western Antarctica volcanoes. They very seldom talk about that. But, but Peter, um, in your knowledge, uh, how far back do you have to go to understand or or find that it it actually perhaps was iceless as a continent? I've read something that talks about four thousand BC. Um, there was um, animals uh, and, and and sort of. African um, sort of people perhaps found the way to draw maps of uh, Antarctica uh, and did that drawing on gazelle skin is the one I've read. Um, is that factual or do
2: you think that's just just poppycock? No, I think that comes in the poppycock there. Antarctica glaciated 34 million years ago. Yeah, I thought that. It it, it rewarmed for a period from 24 down to 12 million years, and then it froze up again totally, and then went even further into the deep freeze 5 million years ago, and we haven't come out of that. You get these warm spells of 500,000 years uh, interspersed along that history, but uh, it's only these uh, interglacial periods that, Used to occur every forty-one thousand years, and now they're occurring every hundred thousand years, and I don't think anyone has actually come to explain why it changed. But certainly, most of its time is uh, is in the deep freeze, where where uh, um, you know you've got kilometres of ice covering the northern hemisphere countries, and. Um, it, so. One of the interesting things is that that when they drill down through the ice, it doesn't matter where they drill, they can get the measure the date from today back through, you know, a couple of hundred thousand years, and you think, well, so that there's been no loss of ice in that time. It's not melted in that time. There's no temperature gap in that in that wow. drilling back through the ice. So it, it tells us that Antarctica hasn't melted, it's been there for All at right. least 5 million plus. Yeah, and so look, as, as we
4: wind up, um, prognosis for summer uh, from from Peter Foster, uh, you know, we've been told we're going to have this El Nino um, system throughout the country, and you know that your your area is going to get very dry, and where Jasper and I live is probably going to get sort of miserably cold and have dull days. Um, what's what's your thoughts now? Because we don't appear to be quite having the um, conditions that they first
2: expected. No, well, on, on I got this farm in, in 1983, and from 83 through to, to 2000, we had severe droughts on a regular basis. Uh, one of them was so severe that by January, I had almost stopped bar about 300 ewes the rest of the stock was grazing in south Otago and I couldn't bring them back until June uh, until we had some grass Uh, but since 2000 we've only had one really decent drought and that was just a year or two back Uh, and even though we had sort of 14 El Ninos in that time uh, so what an El Nino brings is depending on the nature of the El Nino and on obviously on other factors and the so the, the present one doesn't seem to be seems to be quite normal here we've got plenty of rain at the moment and the ground's a bit hard but it's always is at this time of the year so um i i i would not prophesy anything what will be will be <laughs> fantastic fantastic
4: that's how uh we have to think about life what will be will be um we th- we know that in certain things it could be a whole lot better with a whole lot of people saying less like at cop 28 but anyway uh that's for another day um peter uh great to have you back on rcr's greenwashed great to have you as a regular contribute contributor in, in recent months because um we we do learn and i hope our listeners learn from your output so um let's hope we can have you back in 2024 uh and so may you and your wife have a great christmas and a uh, sort of healthy start to 2024
3: yeah, thanks, for coming, to you
4: thanks yeah, for coming on thanks for coming on
1: thank you check out our brand new rcr foundation members club go to realitycheck.radio members and join now
4: Welcome back, listeners, to RCR Greenwashed with Don and Jasper Reed. And as is common in this show, we have focused a lot on climate change because we think that is the ultimate greenwashing um, uh, of the world at the moment. I mean, there's plenty of others, but the big ticket item climate change. And not only are we talking about CO2 and methane, we're talking about coastal management and the use of uh, information. Uh, or the presentation of information from our councils is coming to the fore louder and clearer. And none more uh, so in my own council this week, Jaspreet, yours truly, Jaspreet, <laughs> Bone high councillor, had to front up uh, with to her council on coastal management in South Linder. And <clears throat> it's not uncommon. Around the country, there are other councils grappling with the same thing, some for many, many years. And one of them is the Kapiti Coast District Council, and it's our pleasure to have on today, our uh, Salima Padamsi, who's the chair of the uh, Coastal Rate Payers United uh, in that area. And we're going to try and break out what the process has been today, to date and what we think has to happen in the years, months and years ahead, because this stuff is not going away. And to set the scene, um, I'm going to suggest that it looks pretty much to me as a layman, that the councils and their advisors around this country are using very much outdated information directed from the, they are arguing the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, when in fact, uh, and they're using the most unlikely scenarios of 8.5 representation concentration pathways, 8.5. Very much an unlikely scenario suggested by the IPCC, but our councils are still using it. But anyway, welcome, um, Salima. Yeah, you've been at the coalface of of this for a long, long time. You have a lot of history here. Would you like to start at the beginning and sort of um, give us a potted view of how it's played out?
6: Yes, I'd, I'd love to. So crew started in 2012 as a direct result of lines, hazard lines, being placed on our limbs. And um, with that came building restrictions and and building codes and all kinds of things that went with them. But we didn't know they were coming. We found out that they were there because we read about it in the newspaper. We were not informed, nobody told us. And it was the Dom Post in 2012 that it was front page news. And so a group of us got together and we formed Coastal Rate Pairs United. And we're an incorporated, incorporated society. And uh so we we challenged the science, and it's similar. Uh there was not a sufficient peer review. The data was double counting, it didn't take into consideration accretion. So all, all these things. And um we so we challenged the the science and we we were successful in having the council convene an independent science panel just for the science. And people were allowed to come and speak to it, make a public submission. Um, And then our scientists and their scientists and the international scientists, they all got together and they did a hot tubbing. And the result of it was they found that the science that Capity council was using was not fit for the purposes of planning. And this was Selima, 2014?
3: 12. 12 yeah. So
6: probably by the time they had the science panel would have been maybe 2014, 2013, mm-hmm. around that mm-hmm. time. And so that they found that the science was not fit for the purposes of planning. So, um, And there was also a high court case. It was the Mike Weir versus KCDC, the Capite District Council. And Crew joined as an intervener on, on that case. Um, But the judge came with an interim judgment and, you know, paraphrasing, he said, I think you guys need to go and sort this out before I make a final judgment. And his final judgment was, well, and we did go sort it out and the lines did come off the limbs and all these caveats were put on council website that this uh, report has been deemed not fit for the purposes of planning. So they had to do all of that. But what was really shocking to me was the cost of it. You know, the, the cost of putting an independent science panel together, uh, the cost of going to court using our own rates against oh. us to go to court. So all those expensive, expensive things, if they had just worked with us from the beginning or listened to our concerns, but what had happened was they just they just dug their heels in. And once they dig their heels in, there's not, nothing anyone anyone can do. It, it's It's shocking. I've never seen anything like it.
3: Right now, listeners, before we go further, I'd uh, really like to put out their website, crew, that is cru.org.nz. And I like the way your website is, uh, you know, sort of created here. It talks about good science, good planning, good law. and. The very first tagline it says that crew, the Coastal Ratepayers United Inc., is a broad-based community group that's been effectively representing ratepayers and getting hazard lines removed. You also say that the fight continues as the regional council and the government via Department of Conservation, Ministry for Environment, and NEVA are making policy decisions that will affect everyone. Your site is a treasure trove of the amount of data and reports. And I i mean, I probably have learned a lot more from this than I have from the uh, nearly 200 pages of uh, my council document that I was given to read uh, this week, just gone, our last council meeting and dealing with the same thing. It seems so odd to me, Salima. We are a tiny country and I, you know, I come from comparisons to larger countries in Asia, India and others. You guys have fought the same thing. And have fought it for a decade. And yet here we are in Southland now, beginning the same fight, the same, I mean, I I wonder if you can bring a bit more of how this has impacted your community to the fore, because I worry that our community, and I include Dawn here, we're both Southlanders, is going to feel the impacts of this uh, sooner rather than later. What has been the craziest part of this whole thing?
6: So I just I just want to go back uh, a little bit, and mm. you know, so good science, good planning, good law—that's the crew mantra. Mm. I mean, that that's it. That's what we focus on: good planning, good science, good law, and that brings us then to the New Zealand coastal policy statement. Mm. And I think that's it. Becomes very very difficult for people to follow follow that coastal policy statement. You know, we're getting all these reports. Um, but they're not in line with the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement. And I think that they're not in line because people don't know how to do it or they choose not to do it. So that, that becomes a, a problem. And so for us, the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement is the overarching statutory requirement of this country. And, you know, if you look at Policy 24, it talks about, you know, using the best science available and for some reason, all these consultancies that are doing it are not using the best science available. They are not looking um, at, you know, for example, you know, RCP eight point five. I mean, the IPCC has come out and said in the in their AR six report that it's implausible.
3: Mm.
6: So why would you want to use it? I mean, if you're a consultant. You're, you're coming here. You're you're affecting people's homes, people's lives, people's insurance, people's mortgages. Why would you not want to use the best science available to be the honest broker to give them a fair deal? Why would you want to use science that is implausible? Why? I, I, till today, I don't understand it because by using that extreme level of science, you're going to get an extreme result.
4: Yep. The Seneca, me, uh, Salima, says uh, exactly that you're going to get an ex- extreme result, but also um, that it's almost the dictate from this, the, the peak body in New Zealand, the parliament. The, the, the department seem to want to have this spread around, regardless of the policy statement you talk about and asking for the best science. It seems to be a, an edict from up on high that everything has to be embellished to make the worst-case scenario for New Zealanders. Everything's about the precautionary, the ultimate precautionary principle, everything. Um, and of course we as a farmer we have been fighting the methane issue uh, for years um let alone the CO2 issue, well non-issues I should say um and you're fighting a similar thing on on a coastal strip I mean it it just the edicts are coming from um sort of up on higher places supposedly and these consultants are milking it I mean surely they're only milking it because they can
6: well, I I think that in our case, um, you know, when I when we bring up science to our you know senior council staff, you know, the response is we're not scientists, we're planners, you know, and and that that's kind of, yeah, that's true. They are planners; they're not scientists. Mm-hmm. But we have a track record, and if we see a concern, they should be addressing it. But for for me, I don't really understand the point of doing something that's going to hurt your community so badly and and because of that and because we've been really fighting the science we've decided to um contract Waikato University Earth Science Department to do a science report that is based in the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement because i think either they don't want to do it or they don't know how to do it and it's about time we put our money where our mouth is and said here we go. This is how it should look like. This is what it should look like.
3: Right, yes, Salima, When this happened, I see old newspaper reports talking of the fact that about two hundred million dollars in equity was wiped off the properties. But uh, and that 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 is, of course, you know, the moment you start putting something on limb, reports there is there. But what was your main problem with the report? How you've been there now for? nearly a dozen years at that point. How much has the sea come in? What has been nothing, the impact?
6: Nothing, nothing, Um, You know, uh, I, uh, every six months, I go outside my house and I me- measure the dunes and mm-hmm. it has never gone less than 50 meters. It's probably even more now. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. So, okay. and, and so that's quite a, so we, we live in Kapiti, it's called the Cuspate Coast which mm-hmm. means that our beach accretes a lot more than it erodes. Right. So it may have you may have storms and it may cut back dunes every now and then. You might get a severe cutback. But over the long run, it will go further than it will ever come back. Right. So there is very little uh, erosion. But we, like the rest of my team and my members, were waiting for the Waikato University report to use actual science, real data, proper modelling, and come back and tell us what we can do or what needs to be mitigated. But we um, need to show that because right now council have an adaptation map which mm-hmm. goes two kilometres inland from the beach. So on a rough guess, estimate conservative, I'd say 8,000 homes and businesses.
3: Wow.
4: Agree. And so just going going on that a little bit more, um in the past, it sounds like um, modelers using less than good data have created these um, these models and um, they seem fallacious. So why would they, you know, going back to this, why would they do this? Why would they continually put the pressure on people um, in an area such as cavity? A- and who are the people behind encouraging this I mean, you've you've got another group, a panel that's been established. They don't seem they seem to be more obstructive than create um than useful to your area
6: so the the panel, it's the coastal advisory panel. Mm. They're looking at adaptation. and adaptation is a non- statutory requirement. So you don't have to do it. You're not legally obliged by by the by by the government to do it. But you are legally obliged to look at coastal hazard risks, and that yep. falls under the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement, and that's a statutory requirement. So, I, I, so I, we have nothing to do with adaptation. We are very um, focused. We almost have tunnel vision when it comes to our mandate, and that is the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement: coastal hazard risk assessment. I mean, that's that's our hymn you know, so adaptation is is something new that this council is doing. They're not mandated to do it. It's not a statutory requirement to do it. And so by identifying all these homes, and and of course, the people that have been affected, don't know they're affected, because it's not on their limbs, or they haven't been notified. And so that causes a whole other area of concern, because like me, they read it in the newspaper, Mm -hmm. that, you know, their homes are being affected, that this draft report for the adaptation is coming out and and they're using all the science and the million dollar question Don is why would you do it? Why would you use this extreme science? Why would you do that People's homes that's their biggest asset. I mean people work two three jobs to pay their mortgage even to get a mortgage, get a bank loan it's 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 their only one big thing that they own it's their biggest asset. So why would you want to take that or hurt them in that area? where their assets, where their children are, where their dogs are, where their family comes to visit. Why, why would you want to do bad things to those people? Why not work with them to be an honest broker? And because they keep using this extreme science, there is no level of honest broker and it's causing a huge disconnect between the council, between the advisory panel and the community.
4: Yeah, look, and, and I've noted this uh, with significant natural areas on land uh, around farms. Um, and now we've got uh, the other thing. I've just forgotten the name of the next level of the significant natural Shazim. areas SASMs, Shaz- yes, SASMs. It's all the same stuff. It just takes people's um, uh, freedom and what they thought was freehold title and starts messing with it. And it, it, it's unamusing it's very uh costly and it's creating major anxiety for anyone that faces it and um you know, you're right salima i can't understand why um risk assessments for a start they should be done by a property owner on their own or why why would you need if there's a risk to be faced surely the freehold title owner should be the first to be worried about it um, but clearly this isn't uh the requirement and you've just taught me something. I didn't realize that adaptation plans were not part of the whole concept. So that begs, uh yeah, brings another thing to my my head. Uh, why are we going past to the point of adaptation plans now when we haven't even got the risk assessment right? if, if even if you did as a community need to do a risk assessment, we've got that bad. So it just it sort of doubles down on bad, doesn't it?
6: Yeah, so there is a national adaptation plan. So yes, there yes. is one that exists, but it's not a statutory requirement. Right. It's not a policy statement like the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement is. Okay. And you know, this is what I was uh,
3: recently told in council that we now, now that we have the science this last week, we now need to socialize it. I don't even know what that <laughs> means. Socialize it, bring it to the people. <laughs> but again, my worry is the sort of Harm. this will cause the ratepayers, based on science, which is improbable, unlikely. So not, uh, you know, meeting the norms that are required by the coastal policy statement, uh, policy number 24, that based it on the best science. But we are going to destroy peoples today for an improbable unknown tomorrow, 100 years from now. How right is that? Uh, I, for one, can never sign off on something like this, you know, regardless of the repercussions or regardless of what comes there. But I am. Could you tell us more about Saliva? Who provided that science to your council?
6: So this time around, it was Jacobs Consulting. So they who are they? Well, I don't I don't know a lot about them, except that they're based in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've done work, according to this council at other councils, and they've provided a report. So. When the Coastal Adaptation Panel was in its early stages, there was a working group. And CRU was a part of that working group. And that working group put a terms of reference together for Jacobs, or it wasn't Jacobs then, but we put a terms of reference for a consultancy company. And it was looking at a coastal hazard risk assessment in line with the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement. So that was what the, the working group had agreed. That was what had been tendered by the council and consultancy companies applied for it. Jacobs applied for it and a contract was issued for deliverable one, which is a New Zealand, uh, which is a coastal hazard risk assessment. And it was going to be done in two volumes. So one was methodology and then one was the application, the results. So when the first volume came out, I think in 2021, it was a, coastal hazard vulnerability and susceptibility report assessment sorry and when we asked the council well what changed because suddenly it's not in line with the new zealand coastal policy statement and it's veered into a different direction and um no one at council can tell us how that happened So we went through a a formal process with the Office of the Ombudsman and it took about 18 months and everybody agreed that council did not hold the documents about why it changed into Mm a vulnerability and susceptibility assessment. And yet they got paid a quarter of a million dollars for their report. But now for us, the problem is, is we we have no more skin in that game because we are only with the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement and a coastal hazard risk assessment. So that hasn't been delivered. So we don't have a lot to do with adaptation. It's not in our mandate. And, but we are keeping a watching brief on it. Of course we would. And it's again, it's the science and we've critiqued the science, by the way, we have peer reviewed the science and we have Mm -hmm. given council a copy of our review. We have given Jacobs a copy of our review. Um, And I think it made very little minimalistic changes. So they Mm -hmm. didn't take anything that we said on board. But again, adaptation is not cruise business. Our business is the New Zealand coastal policy statement, coastal hazard risk assessment. So, and that's why we are now doing our own report because council won't deliver it. But I have to be honest and, and just give a big shout out that the data sets that we got that we gave to the Waikato University, council did give them to us. So mm-hmm. council did give us the data sets. And without those data sets, we wouldn't have been able to do our reporting with the Waikato University. So they they are helpful in, in that way
3: mm-hmm. because
6: now adaptation and coastal hazards are two, two different beasts. They're not the same.
3: Right. Now, I, I was not aware of this consultancy, uh, Salim, until you mentioned it. So I looked them up. They seem to be an American outfit, and their website says that approximately 15 billion, yep, that's a B, 15 billion in annual revenue and a talent force of approximately 60,000. Jacobs provides a full spectrum of professional services, including consulting, technical, scientific, and project delivery for the government and private sector worldwide. They've got six odd jobs listed in Wellington, similar number in Christchurch. But they are, again, Don, you know, we've spoken about these global consultancies in the past, things like WSP, Oricon, based out of, I mean, pretty much based everywhere in the world now. And this worries me because that's one arbiter of, you know, deciding that this is the science. And I think when we do this like you were talking, Selima. you know, you went to Macy University, you've spoke, to, you have a few professors on your panel, some of whom William DeLonghi and others we've spoken to. That's the experts we should be using. Local Kiwis who have a sense of, you know, the coast and who've been here a while and who we can, who are easily accessible. Not these conglomerates that, you know, mushroom up everywhere. Don?
4: Well, uh, look, and my radar went up as well. And, of course, I found out uh, that um, Jacobs and WSP are also involved with the Cook Strait Ferry um, sort of, <laughs> you might call that a fiasco at the moment. So <laughs> they, they, you, Jasper, you, you're always very good at researching um, the wiring diagrams and, yeah, you know, the tentacles, as we call them, are wide. But going back to, and, and I don't think we can focus on that today because it's, no. um, it's just a different election in many ways but it's it's good to put the radar up and say we need to be careful of where all these uh ideas and ideology in fact is coming from I think it's ideology more than um ideas Uh, and science uh and I but my radar also went up um Salima when you said your council paid quarter of a million dollars for something that isn't that obvious uh you know there's no real trace of of how that money was spent. Is that is that how I picked that up?
6: Well, a report was produced and nobody knows how it was produced. There's <laughs> no emails, there's no documentation, not, n- nothing. I mean, we have been asking. So initially we just asked uh, what was what instruction was uh Jacob's given to move into the vulnerability and susceptibility assessment, because we were awaiting a coastal hazard risk assessment. So the minute that that report came out, crew was no longer a part of it. How could we be? We we don't do adaptation. We mm. were looking for a coastal hazard risk assessment. But regardless of that, there is no documentation. Council cannot tell you, cannot tell us how that report came to be. But they were still paid $250,000 for it. I don't i
4: don't know yeah that's that's hard to fathom what i do know is uh having a long history and all this stuff is that if councils don't get what they want round one they do buy, buy time and have round two perhaps 10 12 years later and they will keep doing it until the machinery of local government and central government gets its way and of course that aids right into or adds right into the the pocketbook of the consultants so I'm a cynic on all this stuff, and so it's not unique, but that's what's happened in New Zealand around, for instance, um, in farming sense, Jasper, methane. We've talked about this for years. This is now 700-odd million gone into, uh, well, 200 million directly, but a lot more into <clears throat> buildings, let alone consultants. Um, they just keep coming back. Round the back of the bike sheet and having another go. Circle the wagons and have another go. Coming in, it's like cowboys and Indians. Just, I mean, just not just doesn't... not
3: just farmers now. Even down that the latest report that yeah. came this weekend just gone, where they spoke about how we, when we breathe out, we don't just breathe out carbon dioxide. There is point is 0.1% of uh, methane emissions can be put down to human beings breathing. Seriously, <laughs> seriously. So you you know exactly where this is coming. They will not back off at any chance. <laughs>
6: So I'm just surprised that 10 years later that crew still exists because we really shouldn't be existing. You know, we need a remedy. We need those. No, we're not arguing coastal hazard lines. We're, we're not arguing that we're just saying, let's get it right. Let's get it right and work together to see how many houses, homes, areas are affected. And if it's mitigatable, can we mitigate it? Can we work together? Can I don't know? Because when the first report came out, it was 1,800 homes. And that's along the whole coast. And that was based on science that was not fit for the purposes of planning. 10 years later, we're back again. And, you know, no, I don't think when we started Crew that we ever fathomed that we would be here 10 years later, fighting the same fight, exactly the same. It, it's just for me, it's extraordinary. So
4: so even just going back to what uh, that and what I've just previously said about how they re- recycle, you know, you had uh, local body elections last year. Did the the regime change at Cavity Coast? Was there a lot of councillors, uh, new councillors in, in in situ now? Uh, and and or secondly, has the management at Capital Council changed that much? Has the senior management changed in that 12 years?
6: So we have we did have local body elections, and so we had a whole influx of new councillors. A lot of them resigned, and uh, we've got new ones, which I think is, is good. And we now have a new CEO and a new person who is, in, you know, overarching in charge of the coastal adaptation and coastal hazards. And it's been down to them that they have been so open about it, and I think they understand our frustration, the CEO and and the next one in charge, that we were able to get um, the data sets, that they understand that we've been around for 10 years, that they're taking what we're saying seriously. Because before, it took me two years to get one meeting at council. Two years to get one meeting. And it was a box ticking exercise for them. Yep, we've met with crew, done. So we were never really heard. Mm. And councillors, um, I, don't, I don't think, because there's a few new ones, and I don't really think that they understand really what's going on. I mean, you know, I received a letter from the mayor about a month or so ago and said, you know, you should really be working through the CAP process. But, you know, since December 2020, I've been telling them that CAP is different from what needs to be done. And for some reason that's falling on deaf ears of our counselors and they either don't understand it, don't want to understand it, it's in the too hard basket, you know, and if they, yeah, and, and they just, they just I, I, there is no political will to really understand what is going on. Yeah, e- even I think and, uh, with, with Jim Bolger and some of the, the stuff that's been going on in the adaptation issue, I mean, I don't know if it's falling on deaf ears. I mean, we don't have anything to do with it, but I mean, it's hard to ignore in Capity.
4: Yeah, that was my next question, Salima. Who was leading Cap? And you've just said it's um, Sir Jim Bolger. well
6: um, oh, it's not and- Sir not nice not
4: so. oh gosh I thought he was how, how dare I say that
6: <laughs> I'm getting
4: confused with Danger Jacinda um anyway uh yeah funny how people get these citations and confuse us all sorry and that includes me but it's interesting uh you've had some interesting interactions with CAP and some accusations have been leveled that are well publicized you've you've written about them um can do you want to just give us a wee bit of an overview of how how um how non-constructive or unconstructive they are?
6: Well, we've really had nothing really to do with CAP. We did invite when Mr. Bolger was appointed as chair um, in 2021, we did have him come and speak to our AGM. You know, we thought we needed to hear it. We needed to see what was going on. And and he, he came and it was really good. And he came with Martin Manning and some other person from the panel. Um, but it, it didn't. It, it it went quite, it, he was quite dismissive and, you know, just to paraphrase, you know, the message was, thank God I didn't build at the beach and you guys were stupid that you did. So that's just a paraphrase. Of from, the message from, from, cap, which is,
3: which for listeners, if you missed that cap is the Capity
6: adaptation panel, postal adaptation, Coastal Panel, postal adaptation yeah, plan for, yeah, for Capity, Yeah. So that was kind of what, what, what happened. And, um, and subsequently um i did get a phone call from jim Bolger, who called crew a bunch of bullshitters climate change deniers and he said that we would never have any uh and an, any participation in the coastal adaptation process so mr Bolger effectively shut the door on crew and that's where we've left it well wow.
4: yeah hence my my comment about being uh, un uncon- non-constructive dialogue I mean interesting that that strikes me as downright bullying um and and I'm not sure that it should be tolerated uh, much longer I hope your community stands stands up and defends your status um uh Salim and your and crew status because it's unacceptable to have that sort of bullying level uh in my opinion it, it, it's not unique by the way it's not unique I know how these people work and if they want to get their own way, they do marshal their their sycophants behind them and they do it by um, uh, having others uh, do the bullying. It's just it's just the way we are in this country. It's supposed to be a democratic process. And so um, you, know, let's hope let's hope democracy and as you say, honest brokers stand up because without casting aspersions against um, a, a person's character, you can't have that sort of nonsense when you're dealing with the property of individuals uh, the way they are. you are there, and you can't have one man saying he knows better than everybody else, even in the face of current science. He knows more. He knows better. He knows best. Can't have that. So, yeah, what's your next plan? So, I mean, yeah, we've got a lot of... Uh, I think this is going to um, morph in 2024. This is going to... Seriously,
3: yeah, this issue is developing is
4: other away. councils around the country. Um So, what is Crew's next plan? You're getting this report done by the Waikato University,
6: yes, um,
4: at great cost to you and yes, your so volunteers. we've raised the
6: funds. We've had to raise the funds through our mm. membership to to fund for that. And for me, I think that's well, it's a little bit sad and disappointing that a statutory required report that council have to do is now being funded for by ratepayers in a ratepayers group. But I think for us, we're now waiting to to see what the findings of that report will be. And I'm hoping that it, you know, that we will be able to then take that uh report higher to central government. So there's two parts of the report. There's the science and and the, the risk assessment and probability. And then there's the risk assessment in terms of um what what we have to do. And we're working on the terms of reference for the second part and we're waiting for the first part from from the university and we're hoping that by producing a report that is in line with the New Zealand coastal policy statement that we can then lobby central government and say look this is what it should look like there is no 8.5 there is no implausible science we're using the same data sets that the council have given jacobs i mean there is just so for us we're hoping that this report will be not only a game changer at central government but for coastal communities in terms of how to really do it properly we will be the honest broker because we can't find one
4: yeah and look that's honorable and fantastic uh, i just give you a word of warning uh, having been involved in something similar in the in the local area around water quality where uh, my former organization federated farmers locally spent forty thousand dollars on a water quality and trend state and trend report for southland shared it with the regulator and it was conveniently buried they used facilitators to actually collaborate and of course the facilitator was more he trained as a nudge unit um advisor and Federated Farmers South and Lost spent $40,000 and the report was buried. So be very wary. And the other thing that I think uh, is admirable in your state at the moment, you funded this report. I hope that you never, ever have to go back into court and dignify lawyers, especially the highly, what well, any lawyers actually. I hope you never have to because, man, you can burn some cash uh, and you shouldn't have to because as you say, it's your own money fighting your own, own council.
6: It, yeah, and our rates raw, are used against us. Our rates are used against us to yes. go to go to court. And I think that's not a good look for for any council. Well, but I take your your warning with full full listening capacity to to make sure that we are very careful in terms of how we're lobbying it, not to let it get buried. And if there's anything if from the material that you have about crew, we're loud and we're very loud. And so when we think that we've got something that really needs to be lobbied and focused on, we, I think we have the expertise in-house to be hopefully able to do it. Anyways, that's what I am hoping for, that we will be able to, to do that.
4: I yeah, look, that. I, I've seen a list list of some of your people, sorry, Jasper. I've seen a list of some of your people and they are honourable people. They are. And that's what we need. Um, it, it is always Amuse me how even in Federated Farmers, going back to the organisation that I once chaired, um, how we consistently dignify bad processes with our own money. Um, it's just, it's, it's a really strange phenomenon, but it's the way we seem to do it. So, um, it's it's um, it's a unique situation. Um, we've just had COP twenty eight finish in uh, Dubai.
6: Yeah,
4: it strikes me that. There's a bit of a hiatus uh opportunity well there's an opportunity for it for the world to say oops uh we oops we're not going to go any further there's people trying to put food on the table there's people trying to manage their daily uh life and governments of the world have over been in overreach mode for years so bring it right back to new zealand the overreach has been clear to me for years and now we have every council that I can read about in New Zealand is talking double digit rate increases next year. Yeah, Their planning is underway right now. It is unacceptable in my belief that any council should have a rate increase next year. They should all be made to uh, tie down their expenditure and manage what they do. The most important things done first and the superfluous stuff just gets flipped off the table. That doesn't seem to be the case, uh, Jasper. I'm putting it on you now, and um, maybe your no. observations, um, Salima. Is that happening? Uh, you see any want to reduce rates in this country and climate, hold, the, hold the line?
3: Climate change is the biggest revenue generator for for everyone. Be it you know, be it non governmental operators or your NGOs or local government, central government, and there just seems to be an excuse that. We need to be seen to be doing something. But what I am trying to bring to the fore is what we need to be seen to be doing. Can't be You can't have a medicine that's worse than the ailment itself based on some very, very dodgy science. And I think, as Salima said, one of the problems is someone who's in council is a planner. They're not a scientist and they wash their hands off. Councillors are depending on papers presented to them by those planners. I mean, how many people? I last week I had a 800 plus page agenda. Out of 200 pages of that was just this particular report. How many within the council? And I mean, anywhere in council, staffers, councillors, elected, non-elected members. How many have gone through that? Because I think every time you put your pen to the you know dotted line, sign up something or vote in favour of something, you should be jolly well sure that you know what you are doing, because me as a representative of the people, elected representative, that's my job. There's, I, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I make sure that if I'm signing something or if I'm agreeing to something, I have read it backwards, forwards, everywhere possible. Here's hoping we can get a bit of the same diligence in others who are in these positions of authority making decisions that impact TV's.
6: Mm -hmm. Well, I think for I I can't speak for other councils, but I can speak for this one is that you get these reports and then you get recommendations, the staff recommendations. Mm -hmm. And then that's normally the easy way out. That's what the staff recommends if they know what they're talking about. And um, a few years ago, because I'm Canadian, a few years ago, I was back in Canada and I went to see the mayor of my own city. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, you know, because I we were having, crew was already formed. We were having these problems with the council. And she said, in Canada, staff cannot give recommendations to elected officials because they are not elected. Elected officials have to come up with their own recommendations by talking to their own constituents. Yes. So wow. it's a very different form of, of un- understanding because we, and and to be quite honest, I mean, if you work in a big organization and you get recommendations from your staff, you would trust them. Why Why wouldn't you trust them? But the problem is if you don't understand it yourself, yeah. then it's, really, it's the consultancy group that's leading the charge. They're telling you, and then that's being passed on, and then that's being passed on, and then we're feeling the end effects of it here in, in our homes and in our communities and, yeah. and, and of course, and that just increases rates. I know that uh, I, I read recently in an official information request that the coastal advisory panel here in Capiti have uh, spent three million dollars. Yep.
4: Wow. that's a lot that of could have money. been spent on something.
6: Stormwater yeah. drains, could have... it could be any anything. But that's a lot yeah. of money on a science that is by his gotcha. yeah. own own wording implausible.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's 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 par for the course around every council. The waste, in my opinion. I've observed this for 35 years. The waste just gets worse. The job, the expansion of local government away from their core business has just been, well, I call it obscene, but other you know, clearly the voters vote for it. So um, I'm and ratepayers vote for it. So I can't argue I'm just one man. But um interestingly, a couple of things before we wind up this will carry on Salima. this is this is the first of hopefully many interviews we have (laughs) on this issue around the country but i observed um uh jaspreet's council last week the the hour or so this was talked about Mm. there was only one person around that table that had any uh knowledge on this and it's jaspreet the rest of her council were so close to mute it was cringeworthy um but so so jasper good job uh, i have to say because you're gonna have to you're gonna have to run the cutter on this on your own for a bit longer and you'll get i think you will get the um, majority of your councillors across the line but you can't have councillors saying oh look i've got to do this for my children my grandchildren they just won't thank me if i don't stand tall on this now against you know the the dignifying the lie basically so look Salima we've taken uh, about half an hour, a bit more of your time, and we do want to have you back. But I think the key points from you today were: you're all about and crew, uh, good science, good planning, good law. And to me, that's all about upholding the institutions that I hold dear, which are the property right. Uh, and, And to me, maintaining the property right, a property, maintaining your authority over property, as an individual is a fundamental tenet of western society and uh at the moment we're having them trampled over all the time property rights so look uh thank you for your input today and we know we'll get a lot of feedback on this um we know you've got good people in your team uh that will also give us feedback and uh, we've we've got plenty of other contacts around the country so keep in touch and um we'll see how this progresses but all the best uh
6: thank you yeah thank you and thank you for having me uh on on your show um yeah it's it's very rarely that I would give an interview but I thought it was it was important given given the dialogue that's going around on coastal communities and coastal issues so but I, I do really want to thank you for having me today
3: Thank you so much for coming on, Salima. We are very grateful. You've got a house full. We hope you get some time (laughs) off from your crusade over this time and have a great Christmas and New Year.
6: I'm looking forward to it. And a happy Christmas and a good New Year to both of you and your families. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Ciao.
1: You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far new zealand it's time for a reality check reality check rcr reality check radio rational discussion common sense and open debate for real With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker.
0: Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch.
1: The man who cares so much and whose background is for real. Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get acc they can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain, and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, reality check radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Welcome back,
4: listeners, to RCR Greenwashed with Don and reed And as is common in this show, we have focused a lot on climate change because we think that is the ultimate greenwashing um, uh, of the world at the moment. I mean, there's plenty of others, but the big ticket item, climate change. And not only are we talking about CO2 and methane, we're talking about coastal management and the use of uh, information uh, or the presentation of information from our councils is coming to the fore louder and clearer and none more uh, so in my own council this week, Jaspreet, yours truly, Jaspreet, Bone Pri <laughs> councillor, had to front up uh, with to her council on coastal management in South And <clears throat> it's not uncommon. Around the country, there are other councils grappling with the same thing, some for many, many years. And one of them is the Kapiti Coast District Council. And it's our pleasure to have on today our uh, Salima who's the chair of the uh, Coastal Ratepayers United uh, in that area. And we're going to try and break out what the process has been today to date and what we think has to happen in the years, months and years ahead, because this stuff is not going away. And to set the scene, um, I'm going to suggest that it looks pretty much to me as a layman that The councils and their advisors around this country are using very much outdated information directed from the, they are arguing the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, when in fact, uh, and they're using the most unlikely scenarios of 8.5 representation concentration pathways, 8.5, very much an unlikely scenario suggested by the IPCC, but our councils are still using it but anyway welcome um salima yeah you've been at the coalface of of this for a long long time you have a lot of history here would you like to start at the beginning and sort of um give us a potted view of how it's played out
6: yes i'd, I'd love to so crew started in 2012 as a direct result of lines hazard lines being placed on our limbs and um, with that came building restrictions and, and building codes and all kinds of things that went with them. But we didn't know they were coming. We found out that they were there because we read about it in the newspaper. We wow. were not informed. Nobody told us. And it was the Dom Post in 2012 that it was front page news. And so a group of us got together and we formed Coastal Rate Payers United. And we're an incorporated, incorporated society. And uh, so we, we challenged the science and it's similar. Uh, there was not a sufficient peer review. The data was double counting. It didn't take into consideration accretion. So all, all these things. And um, we, so we challenged the, the science and we, we were successful in having the council convene an independent science panel just for the science. And people were allowed to come and speak to it, make a public submission. Um, And then our scientists and their scientists and the international scientists, they all got together and they did a hot tubbing. And the result of it was they found that the science that Capity Council was using was not fit for the purposes of planning.
3: And this was Selima 2014?
6: 12. 12. Yeah. So probably by the time they had the science panel would have been maybe 2014. 2013, Mm -hmm. around that Mm -hmm. time. And so that they found that the science was not fit for the purposes of planning. So um, and there was also a high court case. It was the Mike Weir versus KCDC, the Capoteco District Council. And crew joined as an intervener on on that case. Um, But the judge came with an interim judgment and, you know, paraphrasing. He said, I think you guys need to go and sort this out before I make a final judgment. And his final judgment was, well, and we did go sort it out and the lines did come off the limbs and all these caveats were put on council website that this uh, report has been deemed not fit for the purposes of planning. So they had to do all of that. But what was really shocking to me was the cost of it. You know, the the cost of putting an independent science panel together, uh, the cost of going to court using our own rates against us to go to court. So all those expensive expensive things if they had just worked with us from the beginning or listened to our concerns but what had happened was they just they just dug their heels in and once they dig their heels in there's not nothing anyone anyone can do it, it's it's shocking i've never seen anything like it
3: right now listeners before we go further i'd uh, really like to put put out their website crew that, that is c r u org.nz. and I like the way your website is uh, you know sort of created here it talks about good science good planning good law and the very first tagline it says that crew the coastal ratepayers United Inc is a broad-based community group that's been effectively representing ratepayers and getting hazard lines removed you also say that the fight continues as the regional council and the government where Department of conservation, Ministry for Environment and Neva are making policy decisions that will affect everyone. Your site is a treasure trove of the amount of data and reports. And I, I mean, I probably have learned a lot more from this than I have from the uh, nearly 200 pages of uh, my council document that I was given to read uh, this week, just gone, our last council meeting and dealing with the same thing. It seems so odd to me, Salima. We are a tiny country, and I you know come from comparisons to larger countries in Asia, India, and others. You guys have fought the same thing and have fought it for a decade. And yet here we are in Southland now, beginning the same fight, the same... I mean, I, I wonder if you can bring a bit more of how this has impacted your community to the fore, because I worry that our community, and I include Dawn here, we're both Southlanders, is going to feel the impacts of this uh, sooner rather than later. What has been the craziest part of this whole
6: thing? So, I just I just want to go back uh, a little bit. And mm. you know, so, good science, good planning, good law—that's the crew mantra. Mm. I mean, that that's it. That's what we focus on: good planning, good science, good law. And that brings us then to the New Zealand coastal policy statement.
3: Mm.
6: And I think that's it. Becomes very very difficult for people to follow, follow that coastal policy statement. You know, we're getting all these reports, um, but they're not in line with the New Zealand coastal policy statement. And I think that they're not in line because people don't know how to do it or they choose not to do it. So that, that becomes a, a problem. And so for us, the New Zealand coastal policy statement is the overarching statutory requirement of this country. And you know, if you look at Policy 24, it talks about you know using the best science available. And for some reason, all these consultancies that are doing it are not using the best science available. They are not looking um, at you know, for example, you know RCP 8.5. I mean, the IPCC has come out and said in the in their AR6 report that it's implausible. Mm. So why would you want to use it? I mean, you're a consultant, you're, you're coming here, you're, you're affecting people's homes, people's lives, people's insurance, people's mortgages. Why would you not want to use the best science available to be the honest broker, to give them a fair deal? Why would you want to use science that is implausible? Why? I, I Till today, I don't understand it because by using that extreme level of science, you're going to get an extreme result.
4: the cynic in me uh says uh exactly that you're going to get an extreme result but also um that it's almost the dictate from this the the peak body in new zealand the parliament The, the the department seem to want to have this spread around regardless of the policy statement you talk about and asking for the best science it seems to be a an edict from up on high that everything has to be embellished to make the worst case scenario for New Zealanders everything's about the precautionary the ultimate precautionary principle everything um and of course we as a farmer we have been fighting the methane issue uh, for years um let alone the CO2 is well, non-issues I should say um and you're fighting a similar thing on on a coastal strip I mean it it just the edicts are coming from um sort of uh, at, on higher places, supposedly, and these consultants are milking it. I mean, surely they're only milking it because they can.
6: Well, I, I think that in our case, um, you know, when I when we bring up science to our you know, senior council staff, you know, the response is we're not scientists, we're planners. You know, and and that that's kind of yeah, that's true. They are planners, they're not scientists, mm-hmm. but we have a track record, and if we see a concern, they should be addressing it. But for for me, I don't really understand the point of doing something that's going to hurt your community so badly. And, and because of that, and because we've been really fighting the science, we've decided to um, contract Waikato University Earth Science Department to do a science report that is based in the New Zealand coastal policy statement, because I think either they don't want to do it or they don't know how to do it. And it's about time we put our money where our mouth is and said, here we go, this is how it should look like. This is what it should look like.
3: Right. yes Salima, when this happened, I see old newspaper reports talking of the fact that about $200 million in equity was wiped off the properties. But uh, and that 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 is, of course, you know, the moment you start putting something on the limb reports there is there. But what was your main problem with the report? How you've been there now for nearly a dozen years at that point? How much has the sea come in? What has been nothing, the impact? Of-
6: nothing, nothing, nothing. Um, you know, uh, I uh, every six months I go outside my house and I me- measure the dunes and mm-hmm. it has never gone less than 50 meters. Is probably even more now it just keeps growing and growing and growing so okay. and, and so that's quite a so we, we live in kapiti it's called the cuspate coast which mm-hmm. means that our beach accretes a lot more than it erodes right so it may have you may have storms and it may cut back dunes every now and then you might get a severe cutback, but over the long run it will go further than it will ever come back right so there is very little uh, erosion. But we, like the rest of my team and my members, were waiting for the Waikato University report to use actual science, real data, proper modelling, and come back and tell us what we can do or what needs to be mitigated. But we need to show that, because right now council have an adaptation map, mm-hmm. which goes two kilometres inland from the beach. So on... Um, Rough guess, estimate, conservative, I'd say 8,000 homes and businesses.
4: Wow. And so just going going on that a little bit more, um, in the past, it sounds like um, modelers using less than good data have created these, um, these models and um, they seem fallacious. So why would they you know going back to this why would they do this why would they continually put the pressure on people um, in an area such as cavity and who are the people behind encouraging this i mean you've you've got another group a panel that's been established they don't seem they seem to be more obstructive than create um than useful to your area
6: so the the panel it's the coastal advisory panel Mm. they're looking at adaptation and adaptation is a non-statutory requirement. So you don't have to do it. You're not legally obliged by by the by, by the government to do it. But you are legally obliged to look at coastal hazard risks. And that mm-hmm. falls under the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement. And that's a statutory requirement. So I I so I we have nothing to do with adaptation. We are very um focused. We almost have tunnel vision when it comes to our mandate. And that is the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement Coastal Hazard Risk Assessment. I mean, that's that's our hymn, you know? So adaptation is, is something new that this council is doing. They're not mandated to do it. It's not a statutory requirement to do it. And so by identifying all these homes, and and of course the people that have been affected don't know they're affected because it's not on their limbs or they haven't been notified. And so that causes a whole other area of concern because, like me, they read it in the newspaper mm-hmm. that you know their homes are being affected. That this draft report for the adaptation is coming out, and and they're using all the science. And the million-dollar question, Don, is why would you do it? Why would you use this extreme science? Why would you do that? People's homes—that's their biggest asset. I mean, people work two, three jobs to pay their mortgage, even to get a mortgage, get a bank loan. It's it's, it's their only one big thing that they own. It's their biggest asset. So why would you want to take that or hurt them in that area where their assets, where their children are, where their dogs are, where their family comes to visit? Why, why would you want to do bad things to those people? Why not work with them to be an honest broker? And because they keep using this extreme science, there is no level of honest broker, and it's causing a huge disconnect between the council, between the advisory panel and the community.
4: Yeah, look, and and I've noted this uh, with significant natural areas on land uh, around farms, Um, and now we've got uh, the other thing. I've just forgotten the name of the next level of the significant natural areas. SASMs, yes, SASMs. It's all the same stuff. It just takes people's... um, uh freedom and what they thought was freehold title and starts messing with it and it it it's unamusing it's very uh costly and it's creating major anxiety for anyone that faces it and um yeah you're right salima i can't understand why um risk assessments for a start, they should be done by a property owner on their own. why why would you need if there's a risk to be faced? Surely the freehold title owner should be the first to be worried about it. Um, but clearly this isn't uh the requirement. And you've just taught me something. I didn't realize that adaptation plans were not part of the whole concept. So that begs uh yeah, brings another thing to my my head. Uh, why are we going past to the point of? adaptation plans now when we haven't even got the risk assessment right if, if even if you did as a community need to do a risk assessment we've got that bad so it just it sort of doubles down on bad doesn't
6: it yeah so there is a national adaptation plan so yes, there yes. is one that exists but it's not a statutory requirement it's right. not a policy statement like the new zealand coastal policy statement is. okay
3: and you know, this is what I
6: was uh,
3: recently told in council that we now, now that we have the science, this last week, we now need to socialize it. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> socialize it, bring it to the people. But again, my worry is the sort of harm this will cause the ratepayers based on science, which is improbable. Unlikely. So not, uh, you know, meeting the norms that are required by the coastal policy statement, uh, policy number 24, that based it on the best science. But we are going to destroy peoples today for an improbable unknown tomorrow, 100 years from now. How right is that? Uh, I, for one, can never sign off on something like this, you know, regardless of the repercussions or regardless of what comes there. But I am, could you tell us more about Saliva? Who provided that science to your
6: council? So this time around, it was Jacobs Consulting. So they who are they? Well, I don't, I don't know a lot about them, except that they're based in Christchurch mm-hmm. and uh, they've done work according to this council at other councils and they've provided a report. So, when the coastal adaptation panel was in its early stages, there was a working group and CREW was a part of that working group. And that working group put a terms of reference together for Jacobs, or it wasn't Jacobs then, but we put a work terms of reference for a consultancy company. And it was looking at a coastal hazard risk assessment in line with the New Zealand coastal policy statement. So that was what the the working group had agreed. That was what had been tendered by the council and consultancy companies applied for it. Jacobs applied for it. And a contract was issued for deliverable one, which is a New Zealand, uh, which is a coastal hazard risk assessment. And it was going to be done in two volumes. So one was methodology and then one was the application, the results. So when the first volume came out, I think in 2021, yep. it was a coastal hazard vulnerability and susceptibility report, assessment, sorry. And when we asked the council, well, what changed? Because suddenly it's not in line with the New Zealand coastal policy statement and it's veered into a different direction. And um, no one at council can tell us how that happened. So we went through a, a formal process with the office of the Ombudsman and it took about 18 months And everybody agreed that council did not hold the documents about why it changed into Uh, a vulnerability and susceptibility assessment. And yet they got paid a quarter of a million dollars for their report. But now for us, the problem is, is we are we have no more skin in that game because we are only with the New Zealand coastal policy statement and a coastal hazard risk assessment. So that hasn't been delivered. So we don't have a lot to do with adaptation. It's not in our mandate and, but we are keeping a watching brief on it. Of course we would. And it's again, it's the science and we've critiqued the science by the way, we have peer reviewed the science and we have Mm -hmm. given council a copy of our review. We have given Jacobs a copy of our review. Um, And I think it made very little mm, minimalistic changes. So they Mm -hmm. didn't take anything that we said on board. But again, adaptation is not cruise business. Our business is the New Zealand Coastal Policy Statement, Coastal Hazard Risk Assessment. So, And that's why we are now doing our own report, because council won't deliver it. But I have to be honest and and just give a big shout out that the data sets that we got, that we gave to the Waikato University, council did give them to us. So mm-hmm. council did give us the data sets, and without those data sets, we wouldn't have been able to do our reporting with the Waikato University. So they they are helpful in in that way, mm-hmm. because now adaptation and coastal hazards are two two different beasts; they're not the same.
3: Right now, I I was not aware of this consultancy, uh, Selima Till you mentioned it, so I looked them up. <clears throat> they seem to be an American outfit, and their website says. With approximately 15 billion, yep, that's a B, 15 billion in annual revenue and a talent force of approximately 60,000, Jacobs provides a full spectrum of professional services, including consulting, technical, scientific and project delivery for the government and private sector worldwide. They've got six odd jobs listed in Wellington, similar number in Christchurch, but they are again, Don, you know, we've spoken about these global consultancies in the past, things like WSP. Oricon, based out of, I mean, pretty much based everywhere in the world now. And this worries me because that's one arbiter of, you know, deciding that this is the science. And I think when we do this, like you are talking, Selima, you know, you went to Macy University, you've spoke, to, you have a few professors on your panel, some of whom William DeLonghi and others we've spoken to. That's the experts we should be using, local Kiwis, who have a sense of, you know, the coast and who've been here a while and who we can, who are easily accessible, not these conglomerates that, you know, mushroom up everywhere, Don?
4: Well, uh, look, my radar went up as well. And, of course, I found out uh, that um, Jacobs and WSP are also involved with the Cook Strait Ferry, um, sort of, (laughs) you might call Mm. that a fiasco at the moment. So, look, you're always very good at researching um the wiring diagrams and you know the tentacles as we call them are wide but going back to and and I don't think we can focus on that today because it's no. um it's just a deflection in many ways but it's it's good to put the radar up and say we need to be careful of where all these uh ideas and ideology in fact is coming from I think it's ideology more than um ideas science. uh and science uh and I but my radar also went up um, Salima, when you said your council paid quarter of a million dollars for something that isn't that obvious, uh, you know there's no real trace of of how that money was spent. Is that is that how I picked that up?
6: Well, a report was produced, and nobody knows how it was produced. There's <laughs> no emails. There's no documentation. Not nothing. I mean, we have been asking. so initially, we just asked, uh, what was what instruction was uh, Jacobs given to move into the vulnerability and susceptibility assessment because we were awaiting a coastal hazard risk assessment. So the minute that that report came out, crew was no longer a part of it. How could we be? we We don't do adaptation. We mm-hmm. were looking for a coastal hazard risk assessment. But regardless of that, there is no documentation. Council cannot tell you, cannot tell us, how that report came to be. But they were still paid two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for it. I don't, I don't know.
4: Yeah, that's that's hard to fathom. What I do know is, uh, having a long history and all this stuff, is that if councils don't get what they want round one, they do buy, buy time. And have round two, perhaps 10, 12 years later. And they will keep doing it until the machinery of local government and central government gets its way. And of course, that aids right into or adds right into the, the pocketbook of the consultants. So I'm a cynic on all this stuff. And so it's not unique, but that's what's happened in New Zealand around, for instance, um, in farming sense, Jasper, methane. We've talked about this for years. This is now 700 odd million gone into. Uh, well, 200 million directly, but a lot more into buildings, let alone consultants, Um, they just keep coming back round the back of the bike shed and having another go, circle the wagons and have another go coming in. It's like cowboys and Indians. It's I mean, it not, just just, not
3: just farmers now, even down that The latest report that yeah. came this weekend, just gone where they spoke about how we, when we breathe out, we don't just breathe out carbon dioxide. There is 0.1% of uh, methane emissions can be put down to human beings breathing. Seriously? <laughs> Seriously? So you, you know exactly where this is coming. They will not back off at any chance. <laughs>
6: So no, I'm just that, that's true. That, mm-hmm. Sorry. Now I'm just surprised that 10 years later that crew still exists because we really shouldn't be existing. You know, we need a remedy. We need those. No, we're not arguing coastal hazard lines. We're, we're not arguing that. We're just saying, let's get it right. Let's get it right and work together to see how many houses, homes, areas are affected. And if it's mitigatable, can we mitigate it? Can we work together? Can we? I don't know, because when the first report came out it was 1800 homes and that's along the whole coast and that was based on science that was not fit for the purposes of planning 10 years later we're back again and you know no i don't think when we started crew that we ever fathomed that we would be here 10 years later fighting the same fight exactly the same it, it's just for me it's extraordinary
4: so, so even just going back to what uh, that and what I've just previously said about how they re- recycle, you know, you had uh, local body elections last year. Did the the regime change at Cavity Coast? Was there a lot of councillors, uh, new councillors in, in in situ now? Uh, and and or secondly, has the management at Capital Council changed that much? Has the senior management changed in that 12 years?
6: So we, have, we did have local body elections, and so we had a whole influx of new councillors. A lot of them resigned, and uh, we've got new ones, which I think is, is good. And we now have a new CEO and a new person who is, in, you know, overarching in charge of the coastal adaptation and coastal hazards. And it's been down to them that they have been so open about it, and I think they understand our frustration, the CEO and and the next one in charge, that we were able to get um, the data sets, that they understand that we've been around for 10 years, that they're taking what we're saying seriously. Because before, it took me two years to get one meeting at council. Two years to get one meeting. And it was a box ticking exercise for them. Yep, we've met with crew, done. So we were never really heard. Mm. And councillors, um, I, don't, I don't think, because there's a few new ones, and I don't really think that they understand really what's going on. I mean, you know, I received a letter from the mayor about a month or so ago and said, you know, you should really be working through the CAP process. But, you know, since December, 2020, I've been telling them that CAP is different from what needs to be done. And for some reason that's falling on deaf ears of our counselors and they either don't understand it, don't want to understand it. It's in the too hard basket, you know, and if they, yeah, and, and they just, they just I, I, there is no political will to really understand what is going on. Yeah, e- even I think and, uh, with, with Jim Bolger and some of the the stuff that's been going on in the adaptation issue, I mean, I don't know if it's falling on deaf ears. I mean, we don't have anything to do with it, but I mean, it's hard to ignore in Capity.
4: Yeah, that was my next question, Salima. Who is leading Cap? And you've just said it's um, Sir Jim Bolger. Um,
6: oh, it's not, and- sir. Not knowing. Nice.
4: So. Oh gosh, I thought he was. How, how dare I say that?
6: <laughs> I'm getting
4: confused with Danger Cinder. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, funny how people get these citations and confuse us all. Sorry, and that includes me. But it's interesting. Uh, you've had some interesting interactions with CAP and some accusations have been leveled that are well publicized. You've you've written about them. Um, can do you want to just give us a wee bit of an overview of how how um how non-constructive or unconstructive they are.
6: Well, we've really had nothing really to do with CAP. We did invite when Mr. Bolger was appointed as chair um, in 2021, we did have him come and speak to our AGM. You know, we thought we needed to hear it. We needed to see what was going on. And and he, he came and it was really good. And he came with Martin Manning and some other person from the panel. Um, but it, it didn't. It, it, it went quite, it, he was quite dismissive and, you know, just to paraphrase, you know, the message was, thank God I didn't build at the beach and you guys were stupid that you did. So that's just a paraphrase. of From, the message from, from CAP, here. which is,
3: which for listeners, if you missed that CAP is the Capity adaptation
6: panel, postal adaptation, Coastal Panel, postal adaptation yeah. plan yeah, yeah for CAPITY. Yeah. So that was kind of what, what, what happened. And, um, and subsequently um i did get a phone call from jim Bolger, who called crew a bunch of bullshitters climate change deniers and he said that we would never have any uh and an, any participation in the coastal adaptation process so mr Bolger effectively shut the door on crew and that's where we've left it Wow.
4: yeah hence my my comment about being uh, un uncon- non-constructive dialogue I mean interesting it, it, that strikes me it's downright bullying um and and I'm not sure that it should be tolerated uh much longer I hope your community stands stands up and defends your status um uh Salim, and your and crew status because it's unacceptable to have that sort of bullying level uh in my opinion it, it it's not unique by the way it's not unique I know how these people work and if they want to get their own way, they do marshal their, their sycophants behind them, and they do it by um, uh, having others uh, do the bullying. It's just it's just the way we are in this country. It's supposed to be a democratic process, and so um, yeah, you know, let's hope let's hope democracy and, as you say, honest brokers stand up because without casting aspersions against um, a, a person's character. You can't have that sort of nonsense when you're dealing with the property of individuals, uh the way they are. You are there, and you can't have one man saying he knows better than everybody else, even in the face of current science. He knows more. He knows better. He knows best. Can't have that. So, yeah. What's your next plan? So, I mean, yeah, we've got a lot of. Uh, I think this is going to um, morph in 2024. This is going to. Seriously,
3: yeah, this issue is developing is other away. councils
4: around the country. Um, so what is Cruz next plan? You're getting this report done by the Waikato University,
6: yes, um,
4: at great cost to you and yes, your So volunteers. We've raised the
6: funds, we've had to raise the funds through our mm. membership to to fund for that. And for me, I think that's well, it's a little bit sad and disappointing that a statutory required report. That council have to do is now being funded for by ratepayers in a ratepayers group, but I think for us we're now waiting to to see what the findings of that report will be, and I'm hoping that it you know that we will be able to then take that a report higher to central government. So there's two parts of the report. There's the science and and the risk assessment and probability. And then there's the risk assessment in terms of um, what what we have to do. And we're working on the terms of reference for the second part. And we're waiting for the first part from, from the university. And we're hoping that by producing a report that is in line with the New Zealand coastal policy statement, that we can then lobby central government and say, look, this is what it should look like. There is no 8.5. There is no implausible science. We're using the same data sets that the council have given Jacobs. I mean, there is just, so for us, we're hoping that this report will be not only a game changer at central government, but for coastal communities in terms of how to really do it properly. We will be the honest broker because we can't find one.
4: Yeah, and look, that's honourable and fantastic. Uh, I'll just give you a word of warning. Uh, having been involved in something similar in the, in the local area around water quality, where our, my former organisation, Federated Farmers, locally spent forty thousand dollars on a water quality and trend state and trend report for Southland, shared it with the regulator, and it was conveniently buried. They used facilitators to actually collaborate, and of course, the facilitator was more he trained as a nudge unit um, advisor and. Federated Farmers South and Lost spent $40,000 and the report was buried. So be very wary. And the other thing that I think uh, is admirable in your state at the moment, you've you funded this report. I hope that you never, ever have to go back into court and dignify lawyers, especially the highly, what well, any lawyers actually. I hope you never have to because, man, you can burn some cash uh, and you shouldn't have to because as you say, it's your own money fighting your own, own council
6: it, yeah and our rates wrong, are used against us our rates are used against us to yes. go to go to court and i think that's not a good look for for any council well, but i take your your warning with full full listening capacity to to make sure that we are very careful in terms of how we're lobbying it not to let it get buried and if there's anything if from the material that you have about crew we're loud and we're very loud and so when we think that we've got something that really needs to be lobbied and focused on, we, I think we have the expertise in-house to be hopefully able to do it. Anyways, that's what I am hoping for, that we will be able to, to do that. Yeah, look,
4: I, I've seen a list list of some of your people. Sorry, Jaspreet. I, I've seen a list of some of your people and they are honourable people. They are. And that's what we need. Um, it, it is always Amuse me how even in Federated Farmers, going back to the organisation that I once chaired, um, how we consistently dignify bad processes with our own money. Um, it's <laughs> just, it, it's a really strange phenomenon, but it's the way we seem to do it. So, um, it's it's um, it's a unique situation. Um, we've just had COP twenty eight finish in uh, Dubai.
6: Yeah,
4: it strikes me that there's a bit of a hiatus uh opportunity well there's an opportunity for it for the world to say oops uh we oops we're not going to go any further there's people trying to put food on the table there's people trying to manage their daily uh life and governments of the world have over been in overreach mode for years bring it right back to New Zealand the overreach has been clear to me for years and now we have every council that I can read about in New Zealand is talking double-digit rate increases next year. Yeah, Their planning is underway right now. It is unacceptable in my belief that any council should have a rate increase next year. They should all be made to uh, tie down their expenditure and manage what they do, the most important things done first, and the superfluous stuff just gets flipped off the table. That doesn't seem to be the case, uh, Jasper. I'm putting it on you now, and um, maybe your no. observations, um, Salima. Is that happening? Uh, you see any want to reduce rates in this country and climate, hold, the, hold the line?
3: Climate change is the biggest revenue gun for for everyone. Be it you know, be it non governmental operators or your NGOs or local government, central government, and there just seems to be an excuse that. We need to be seen to be doing something. But what I am trying to bring to the fore is what we need to be seen to be doing. Can't be You can't have a medicine that's worse than the ailment itself based on some very, very dodgy science. And I think, as Salima said, one of the problems is someone who's in council is a planner. They're not a scientist and they wash their hands off. Councillors are depending on papers presented to them by those planners. I mean, how many people? I last week I had a 800 plus page agenda. Out of 200 pages of that was just this particular report. How many within the council? And I mean, anyone in council, staffers, councillors, elected, non-elected members. How many have gone through that? Because I think every time you put your pen to the you know dotted line, sign up something, or vote in favor of something, you should be jolly well sure that you know what you are doing, because me. As a representative of the people, elected representative, that's my job. there's I, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I make sure that if I'm signing something or if I'm agreeing to something, I have read it backwards, forwards, everywhere possible. Here's hoping we can get a bit of the same diligence in others who are in these positions of authority, making decisions that impact TVs.
6: Mm-hmm. Well, I think for I I can't speak for other councils, but I can speak for this one, is that you get these reports and then you get recommendations, the staff recommendations. Mm-hmm. And then that's normally the easy way out. That's what the staff recommends if they know what they're talking about. And um a few years ago, because I'm Canadian, a few years ago, I was back in Canada and I went to see the mayor of my own city. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, you know, because I we were having, crew was already formed. We were having these problems with the council. And she said, in Canada, staff cannot give recommendations to elected officials because they are not elected. Elected officials have to come up with their own recommendations by talking to their own constituents. Yes. So wow. it's a very different form of, of un- understanding because we, and and to be quite honest, I mean, if you work in a big organization and you get recommendations from your staff, you would trust them. Why Why wouldn't you trust them? But the problem is if you don't understand it yourself, yeah. then it's, really, it's the consultancy group that's leading the charge. They're telling you, and then that's being passed on, and then that's being passed on, and then we're feeling the end effects of it here in, in our homes and in our communities and, and, and of course, and that just increases rates. I know that uh, I, I read recently in an official information request that the coastal advisory panel here in Capiti have uh, spent $3 million. Yep. Wow. That's
4: a lot
6: that of money. That could have money. been
4: spent on something.
6: Stormwater yeah. drains, <laughs> it could be any anything. But that's a lot yep. of money on a science that is, by I yeah. own own wording, implausible.
4: Yeah, yeah. Look, it's 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 par for the course around every council. The waste, in my opinion, I've observed this for thirty-five years. The waste just gets worse. The job, the expansion of local government away from their core business has just been, well, I call it obscene. But other, you know, clearly the voters vote for it. So um, I'm and ratepayers vote for it. So I can't argue. I'm just one man. But um, interestingly, a couple of things before we wind up. Because this will carry on, Salima. This is this is the first of hopefully many interviews we have <laughs> on this issue around the country. But I observed um, uh, Jaspreet's council last week, the, the hour or so this was talked about. Mm. There was only one person around that table that had any uh, knowledge on this, and it's Jaspreet. The rest of her council were so close to mute. It was cringeworthy. Um, but... So, so Jasper, good job. Uh, I have to say, because you're going to have to, you're going to have to run the cutter on this on your own for a bit longer, and you'll get. I think you will get the um, majority of your councillors across the line, but you can't have councillors saying, "Oh, look, I've got to do this for my children, my grandchildren. They won't thank me if I don't stand tall on this now." Against, you know, the, the dignifying the line. I basically. So look, Salima, we've taken uh, about half an hour, a bit more of your time, and we do want to have you back. But I think the key points from you today were, you're all about and crew, uh, good science, good planning, good law. And to me, that's all about upholding the institutions that I hold dear, which are the property right. Uh, and, and to me, maintaining the property right, a property maintaining your authority over property as an individual is a fundamental tenet of western society and uh at the moment we're having them trampled over all the time property rights. so look uh thank you for your input today and we know we'll get a lot of feedback on this um we know you've got good people in your team uh that will also give us feedback and uh, we've we've plenty of other contacts around the country so keep in touch and um we'll see how this progresses but all the best uh i wanted to
6: thank you yeah thank you and thank you for having me uh on on your show um yeah it's it's very rarely that i would give an interview but i thought it was it was important given given the dialogue that's going around on coastal communities and coastal issues so but I, i do really want to thank you for having me today
3: Thank you so much for coming on, Salima. We are very grateful. You've got a house full. We hope you get some time (laughs) off from your crusade over this time and have a great Christmas and New Year.
6: I'm looking forward to it. And a happy Christmas and a good New Year to both of you and your families. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Ciao.